0: I discovered a strange journal on an arctic expedition written by P.S. Lyle. I am a research scientist with a company that I can't name for fear of them finding me. All names below are fictitious for privacy reasons. A few years ago around Christmas Our Explorer satellite system found strange energy readings in the Arctic Circle. Our team and our military escorts were forced to brave life-threatening blizzards to find the energy source. We were near it when our scout radioed a fast object was headed our way. The military took no chances and fired on the object before we could see it through the heavy snow. There was a loud bang and pieces fell from it as it veered off and disappeared into the storm. The pieces that we found were strange. Wood painted red, toys of all kinds, and a leather-covered book. The book's cover was warm. Its thin, flexible pages were like metal. A pen-like metal cylinder was attached to the cover. Nate, a team scientist, turned the pen over in his hand... Wondering how to use it. He stood statue still for a moment. Staring at the pen. Before screaming bloody murder. He dropped the pen and then passed out. His expression was of sheer agony. I ran over immediately. One of his fingers had been cut off. And cauterized so no blood was lost. But we were a long way from the base. It would be several hours before. We could attempt to reattach it. I screamed for John to pack it in snow, place it in a specimen bag, and seal it. With luck, the cold would slow decomposition until the doctor could check it out. While John was busy, I examined the pen in the book. Had Nate activated a blade that sliced off his finger? Picking the pen up carefully, I opened the book to an empty page. I placed the pen on the metal surface, being sure the other end was pointed away from me in case that I had it wrong. I made a mark with the pen. It left a neat line similar to a Quo pen, with a faint trail of smoke from the metal. Astounded, I put the pen back in its holder, while the rest of the team packed all the wreckage up. Finished, we headed back to our campsite. We planned to get a Medivac on site at the camp and hopefully save the guy's finger. What should have been an hour return trip became two hours of plodding through bitterly cold, featureless terrain combined with a blinding blizzard. When we made it into camp, we headed to the food tent to refuel and warm up in the company of those sharing the cold misery of this place. Our medic, Jake, took Nate and his finger to the medical tent in hopes that the medevac could get to us in this weather. I took the mysterious book to the food tent. I grabbed some pork chops, pinto beans, and a roll from the food line, and headed to a corner so I could look through this strange find. The first thing I noticed was how light the book was, and how the pages were flexible, though it was a metal of some sort. But the most interesting part was what was on the pages, It took a while, but thanks to my Oma, bless her heart, I saw this was Old German. At first, I struggled, but as my memories of her lessons came back to me, I could read the writing. On the inside cover was a name. This journal is the property and story of Nick Claus. May the one who reads it be enlightened. The 18th of June, in the year of our Lord, 1866. Tobias came to see me today. He wants me to join him on an expedition to the Arctic. His boss wants to be the first German expedition to make it to the Arctic Circle, before Carl Koldiwe's expedition next year. It has only been a year since some manic cut my poor Beth to ribbons while I was on another scientific journey. How can I go when she is no longer with me? My brother always gets what he wants, and this time will be no different. He swears this expedition is what I need to live again. Beth, how can I ever live again without you? The 29th of June, in the year of our Lord, 1866. Here we are at last. After all the preparation and hard work, we are on our way. We sail on the Argona Marie. It is a fine ship, with steam and sail power, so we should never be dead in the water during our trip. On our first morning of the trip, Tobias is up early. He is the first on deck from our team to keep himself busy with gear and helping the crew with chores. Hard work keeps boredom at bay on the trip to the Arctic Circle, I hate admitting that my brother was right, but it is good to be away from the tinker shop. No longer hiding in a house of memories and out in the world making new ones. I hope Beth is happy that I'm trying to live again. The 3rd of August in the Year of Our Lord, 1866. Tragedy. Our trip was marred by tragedy today. Jason Moria, one of the crew, has disappeared. No one saw him after his night watch had ended. I saw him last having an intense conversation with my brother, but Tobias said they discussed some cargo misplaced and found later in that day. Jason was experienced. It is hard to imagine that he fell off the ship. Strange lights were seen in the sky with an incredible aurora borealis display continuing until daylight. Beth... I hope you're watching over us from Our Lord's Domain. Rohan Petrov interrupted my reading. Uh, Chris, the samples from today. Yes, Rohan. I hoped you would hurry. I needed to keep reading this history, recorded on something from the future. We can't run any tests on them. I don't know how the military damaged it, never mind what it all is. We can't cut the sample. It isn't wood. He checked his clipboard for notes. You could get the toys at any store. There's nothing unusual to them. But every time we try to scan or cut a piece of not wood, the camp guards report lights in the sky. You mean we were followed? I tried to focus on Rohan, but the open book called me. Don't tell me you think the sample is calling the UFO to us. I'm just reporting our observations... His face turned red. I guess I had punched a button, suggesting he wasn't being rational. Military is jumpy. They even tried to shoot at the helo as it landed. They blamed the snow for low visibility. Okay, okay. Tell them to be more careful. Keep the wild theories between us until the data is verified. Again, my eyes were drawn to the open journal. It was calling to me to keep reading. Keep me informed and keep everyone calm. I'm deciphering the book right now, and interruptions don't help. Okay, Chris, sorry to interrupt your research. Rohan was pissed at being dismissed, but I had no time for crazy theories. Deciphering this journal could tell us when and what countries first came to the Arctic. I dove back into the journal The 5th of August in the year of our Lord, 1866. My journal keeping has been erratic these days. My daily watching for new animals on the ice sheets, fishing, and being a lookout for icebergs keeps me busy all day. The Aurora Borealis is brighter than we have seen yet. There were lights in the sky again, too. More of them than before when Jason went missing. Some of the lights came near the ship and went below the surface of the ocean. The crew is spooked and wants to turn back, but Captain Jericho is keeping them in line for now. Tobias seems fearful of the lights. He will not talk and gets angry if I attempt to discuss it. Beth could always get him to talk when he was like this. The 1st of September in the year of our Lord, 1866. The ice is thicker. We are not sure how far we can go before we turn back. If we get stuck in the ice, we could be crushed. The cold is painful, which limits how long we can be on deck and not suffer from frostbite. In the depths of the ship, with our boilers and stoves running as hot as we can push them, warmth still eludes us. Our heavy clothing weighs on our bodies and our spirits, causing emotions to run high. Episodes of malaise are affecting many of us. I worry about Tobias. Beth, I still miss you. The 15th of September, in the year of our lord, 1866. We lost another man. This time someone else was on deck and saw a shadow run behind Nordric and stab him. Nordric was a blind giant descended from Vikings. He was a rough soul and seemed to enjoy run-ins with the others on board. These fights were becoming more frequent as everyone is on edge from the visit by the lights. Somebody had stabbed him and used the falling snow and strange shifting lights to hide him as they pushed him over and then disappeared. Everyone is panicking and pointing fingers at each other. Tobias believes it is the person that has been whispering mutiny. We are pushing hard against the ice flow now and it is slow going. This death is not helping keep the men in line. Beth, what have I gotten myself into? The 3rd of October, in the year of our Lord, 1866. Mutiny. After a brief skirmish, our men and loyal crew were able to retake the ship. Three of the mutineers were killed, and we lost George, one of our botanists. He will be missed. He was a good man. The captain has set them adrift as bait for the lights, so we can get a closer look. Tobias is livid. I've never seen him so mad. I hope that he can get control. I killed a man, Beth. Are you upset with me? An explosion pulled me to the present. I marked my place in the journal and jammed it in my pocket, got into my Arctic wear, and ran outside. Major Johnson ran towards me, backlit by roaring flames where the helipad markers used to be. It looked like the remains of a snowcat within the inferno. Sir, he nodded, I guess you heard the latest run-in with our friend out there. He sure was calm for someone in his situation. Is that one of our snowcats, Major? I pointed behind him. And if so, how? yes sir whatever it was it came in fast and dropped what looked like coal everything touched by the coal burst into flames he looked back and into the sky one of our long range radios was hit dead center melted into slag on contact injuries I touched where the journal sat in my pocket it was unnaturally warm even through the arctic wear it was hard to focus on my job "'No, sir,' Johnson shook his head. "'Close calls from debris. "'Nothing a band-aid won't fix.' "'At that moment, a light once again buzzed the camp. "'A tent at the edge of the camp exploded. "'Johnson blinked. "'The fuel depot for vehicles and some generators,' he growled. "'Major, you have to stop that thing "'before somebody gets hurt or killed.' "'I stared at the blaze consuming the fueling tent.' Are we freeze from lack of fuel for the generators yes sir we will do our best he turned and laughed I decided my own tent was more private than the food tent the journal pulled at me I had no reason to ignore its call inside my tent I settled into my cot and started reading again the 30th of October. In the year of our lord, 1866. So much has happened since the last time that I wrote in my journal. The mutineers were put adrift on an ice floe. We gave them a raft and provisions for a month if they rationed. One of the men was a map reader, so we copied off directions from our coordinates to the nearest island off Greenman's coast. The massive ice was headed toward that island, They would make it long before they ran out of fuel for a fire and food. I know this sounds cruel, but it was better than what maritime law would have done to them, which was death hanging from a mast. The light showed after dark, which was ten minutes after we had set the men off the ship. A bright beam from one of the lights illuminated the flow of ice. As the men screamed for mercy, they disappeared into the light. The raft and rations went with them. It was a horrible experience and one that I hope we do not have to go through again. The next day, the ice seemed thicker than before, and we slowed to almost no forward speed. With these sails at full and the steam engine at max thrust, we inched forward. As the days dragged on, we carved a path ever north until we broke through that accursed ice floe. Ahead of us was open water, with some icebergs dotting the scene before us. My new watch was set to look for icebergs as we sailed northward. Tobias, as usual, is the first to volunteer for this cold duty. Today, we spotted what looked like land or more ice. It's hard to know for sure. Beth, do you know what awaits us at the North Pole? The 10th of November, in the year of our Lord, 1866. Disaster has come to our expedition, and I fear that we are all doomed. This new land was sheets of ice as far as one could see. Rivers of slush flowed from some distant source, so we sailed into the mouth of one of those weird rivers. For a few days, it was a normal sailing, like sailing a river. We found the way narrowing and ran aground on an ice shelf before we could turn the ship. We unloaded sleds and dog teams that we brought with us and set out in scouting parties to see if it widened again. All we found was a narrowing to nothing, no more than a mile away. The captain had the engine room reverse the propeller and attempted to back off the ice lights that we had hit. The steel-lined keel had a bit deep into the ice, and the ship was not going to move without more help. We ran lines from the fore and aft of the ship, and all hands were pulling as the ship reversed engines. Lights lit the sky as we struggled to haul the ship free. Snow was falling and the cold air became painful as the temperature around us dropped. Between the weather change and the things in the sky, We were all getting spooked. The ship slipped loose the bonds holding it and floated free again, but it was for naught. The drop in temperature had the way back frozen solid in minutes. All we could do was hope for warmer temps tomorrow and try to reverse course. The night was sub zero, and our little swaths of man made warmth became smaller. Tobias has taken to walk in the deck at night, looking for the lights. I checked in on him when I could make sure that he was warm. Beth, will we make it home? This place was never meant for man. The 11th of November, in the year of our Lord, 1866. Writing is keeping me sane, so I must capture all of these spectacles that we were a part of. More lights are in the sky. It is midday, but the cloud cover is keeping the temperature low and the ice frozen. The clouds are dark and angry, with flicks of lightning galloping back and forth like Hermes traveling between the gods. The crew is a superstitious lot, like most seamen, and are performing old maritime customs to ward against the supernatural. The ice is still frozen behind us, and a blizzard is all around us. Tobias is altering between manic activity and watching the lights spin around us in the sky. I hope tomorrow is a better day. I do not know how long we can keep our sanity in this environment. Beth, one more day in this icy hell might be one day closer to you in heaven. Screams in the night dragged me back from getting lost in this window to the past. Rohan ran toward me as I rushed out of my tent. He yelled something before his head went one way and his body another. The dislodged head rolled toward me, blood pounding in my ears as my eyes followed the trail of blood from head to body. Blood still pumped out of his neck. I could not look away. The nightmare appeared behind Tyrone's body, white skin stretched over the outlines of bone, muscle, and sinew, topped by the face of a horned demon. It crouched like it had defied God and was now hiding to escape his holy wrath. It held a staff with a blade glowing and crackling with energy. The journal grew warmer, uncomfortably so, the closer the nightmare got. When it was within striking distance, it froze. Something in my brain screamed for me to flee. I tried to move, but all I could do was raise my hands in defense, still clutching the journal. I expected to lose my head like poor Rowan. The creature stared at the front of the journal. It screamed a horrible, growling roar and ran off at an unbelievable speed, leaving me untouched. Johnson ran up from the north of the camp. In shock, my legs were fighting to keep me standing. "'Are you okay, sir?' Johnson gave me a quick look over and saw Rowan's head on my feet. "'God, poor guy.' Everything was in slow motion. I was dimly aware of Johnson calling our medic Jake. After what seemed like an eternity, a few soldiers and Jake arrived, While these soldiers bagged Rowan's parts, Johnson and Jake led me to the medical tent. What kept the creature from uh, attacking you? Johnson was intrigued by my survival, but I was too numb from shock to talk. He took out all of Rowan's team and, as you saw, chased Rowan out of the specimen tent and, well... I looked at him and gestured with the book that I still held. It was afraid of this, I think. A book? That thing was afraid of a book. Johnson eyed the journal. Is it dangerous? It's been in my possession since we found it out there. I pointed toward the direction of our last expedition. It Seems like it's more of a danger to it than to us. Okay, we'll keep it close and stay inside until we get that thing. Don't worry, I'm going back to my tent when Jake gives the all clear. I'll keep researching this remarkable find. Jake smiled and gave me a thumbs up. Johnson followed me out into the snow. He escorted me, gun drawn to my tent, and left once he saw that I was safe in my domicile. I opened the journal and found my place. Before I lost myself in these stories again, I realized that I craved this book like an addict craves a drug. Was I in over my head? Feeling foolish, I delved back into the book's entries. The 25th of November, in the year of our Lord, 1866. I have not written because nothing has happened since my last entry. We are all still stuck and spend our days trying to survive the intense cold, and find ways to stay sane as we try different ideas to get us out of this mess. All of this while, the light swooped ever closer to our ship day and night. But last night, this all changed when one of the lights came and hovered over us like a hummingbird at a flower. Its bright glow dimmed, and we could make out what haunted us was a machine. A metal cocoon hanging motionless over us. Flames shot out of the side of the flying metal machine. For a moment, the thing was like an iron dragon spouting fire over us. It wobbled like a drunken sailor on weekend leave and slowly moved off in a northern direction. As it got farther from us, it also grew dimmer. The blizzard covered its movements and we lost sight of it. After a few minutes, a loud roar reached our ears and a bright glow bloomed in the night, like a mushroom growing in the direction the metal beast had staggered. Not long after, a horrible hot wind hit us and threw gearing people around like a child stomping through a pile of leaves. Tobias has a sprained ankle, pieces of debris shot from their place of rest like arrows by this hell-spawned wind. Tomorrow, after we attend our wounds and gather these scattered camp equipment, we will hunt for our elusive harasser, and find what fate has befallen the Iron Dragon. Beth, what is happening here? Has some supernatural monster come to roost in the Arctic? The 26th of November, in the year of our Lord, 1866. As dawn broke, our people stirred and prepared for our expedition. We found some of us were taken with a strange sickness, leaving them weak and loose of bile. Some had high fevers and lost their hair as well. Energized and ready to leave, I showed no sign of sickness. Tobias was also ready to go. He gathered those of us who were still well enough and, with our boss, Jeram's blessing, we proceeded north. We left with enough supplies and tents to be able to find this thing as long as we did not travel more than three or four days. We prepared the sleds and dog teams and headed toward the glow still in the sky. After five hours, we were thirty miles north of our ship, looking for a campsite for the first day. By dark, we had established our camp. The temperatures were dropping fast and more snow moved in, but blessedly, it looked to be snowfall and not another blizzard. Harim Knoll, one of our archaeologists, was puking around midnight, and shortly after, he lay dead. Whatever plague befalling our people was fast and lethal, and we could all be dead before we can return home. Beth, how long before this invisible killer kills us all? The 27th of November, in the year of our Lord, 1866, This morning, we buried Harim and broke camp. We pushed hard all day to take our mind off of his death, and to get this trip over with before we all fell to this illness. Tobias is in a strange mood today. He jumped on one of the guys for taking extra time to relieve himself during a break. My brother never acts like this, and I worry that he may be feeling sick or too much stress over our situation. We covered another thirty miles today before we stopped for the night. Not sure how far we have to go yet. The glow in the night is still as bright and does not seem to get any closer. Beth, will I wait tomorrow and find that I am next? The 28th of November, in the year of our Lord, 1866. God, what has happened to everyone? I woke up early and found more sick and dead among our people. It is now Tobias and I. Something else is wrong. I found two people knifed to death. Did they kill each other? No, it's impossible. They were on opposite ends of the camp and the wounds were fatal. Neither could have walked away to die elsewhere. Who killed them? I know I did not. Tobias is again in a foul mood not equal to our losing good people. He is not sad. He is mad. Like something inside is twisted and is showing itself. He yelled at me over my curiosity at the death of the two men. I hope I'm wrong and he's not the killer. Maybe somebody else is following us out in the white. We buried the others in to mark their graves so we could carry them back on the return trip. My brother would not entertain the idea of turning around, so we have traveled 35 miles today. I could hear him muttering to himself all day, and I've grown fearful for his sanity at this point. Beth, Tobias is acting strange. I wish you were here to help me get him to confide in me. The 29th of November, in the year of our Lord, 1866, 1866. I woke last night to something crunching around in the snow. I quietly loaded my pistol and went out into the night. I could not see anything in the range of my lantern, and Tobias was asleep when I checked on him. Maybe an animal had walked through, hopefully not one of the big white bears that we saw as we sailed here. As I headed back to my tent, I saw a white flash behind my brother's tent. I went investigating but found nothing. I returned to my tent and tried to sleep. I had entered Sandman's realm when someone entered the tent. I warily opened my eyes. Through the haze of sleep, I made out my brother standing over me, knife in hand. Startled by this nightmare, I jumped up from the cot. The empty tent had its tent flap open and letting in cold. Was it a dream? or something more sinister. Day came and we once again journeyed north, following the glow of the unearthly object out there in the snow. How can I look my brother in the eye when I believe him to be a murderer? Beth, Tobias is my brother. How can he be evil? I heard Major Johnson outside, so I opened my tent door a crack. Johnson rushed in like the world was on fire and my tent was the last safe place. Mid's back, hovering north of the camp, sitting there watching us. Well, go shoot it. This is why you're here. My irritation turned to fear when he backed away, wild-eyed. We did. Most of my men are bloodstains in the snow. He sank into an empty chair, exhausted. I'm the only one left, We need to live or give them back all the samples. Are you insane? These specimens are the find of the century. Those pieces of the thing would advance metallurgy hundreds of years. Johnson launched from the chair and grabbed me as I tried to sit. How do you know what is important? He yelled, shaking me angrily. All you've done is read this book since we got back. Instead of reading it, you should take it out there and throw it as far as you can. It is out there waiting for you to finish so it can kill us all, including you. Let go of me. I'm your superior. I say what happens here and you best not forget it. He dropped me but continued to glare. His face inches from mine. Now get out and keep this camp safe or I will find somebody who can. You'll get us killed, but I'll protect your people the best I can if you won't. When the monster comes back, I'll point your tent out for it to find its possessions. He stormed out, so I went back to reading. The 30th of November, in the year of our Lord, 1866. This could be my last entry. Today, I am devastated. Tobias has revealed his true self. As we made our way to the resting place of the metal craft from the sky the more he became angry and unhinged. The closer that we came to the resting place of the metal craft, the louder he mumbled to himself. During a loud rant, he let slip his true nature. He had killed my beautiful Beth. He stabbed her with the knife that he had also stabbed me with. My wrestled with him and almost got the knife from him before he stabbed me in the side. His madness made him strong and he threw me off like I was nothing but a flea. While I lay in the snow, writhing with pain, he paced back and forth. Tobias raved about how she had been too good for me and her beauty, a trap that he broke me out of. He spoke in madness, and I see now that he is also the one killing out people during the trap. My brother has always had a temper problem. I see now it was an illness. This madness must have gripped my brother for a long time, and this strange trip had pushed him off the ledge that he was on. His madness subsided and he ran off into the snow. I write this after patching my wound as best as I can, and I'm proceeding with my sled to the craft. If I am to die here, I want my last breath while seeing wonders from the night sky. The 1st of December, in the year of our Lord, 1866. I am here. I have found the Skycraft. Tobias is out there following me. The wound aches, but I am still able to walk. Beth, be with me on this last adventure. I turned the page into my surprise. The next page was a video display. I saw debris like an aircraft crash site. A dog sled, a man limping toward the camera, another man sneaking up on him. I could only assume that it was Nick and Tobias, and the video captured from the craft's cameras. The video switched to a different view. Nick limped to the machine while Tobias hid behind debris. Though I knew he couldn't hear me, I wanted to warn Nick. Tobias jumped Nick and they fell to the ground, fighting Nick managed to knock the knife from his brother's grab. They both struggled to grab it. Nick managed to grab the ivory-handled instrument of death. He stabbed Tobias, rolled away from the writhing body, and dropped the knife instead. Limping more than before, he reached the side of the ship. I could see bright white light pouring from a door as it opened. The view changed to the ship's inside. Small gray and white beans watched Nick as he limped in. Off to the left, a woman wore toward him. The beauty of the woman is like an angel from heaven. Nick looked at her in astonishment before he enveloped her in a hug. You could see surprise on her face before returning the hug. Sound poured from the book. They spoke German, and so I translated below. Her speech sounded mechanical, like a translation program. I thought I lost you. Where have you been, Beth? I've always been here. Ah, I see. In your mind, you see me as your dead wife. I do resemble her, but I am not her. The woman helped the sagging neck from falling. Come, I will take you to our medical center where we will heal your wounds. They walked down the hall, followed by other beings. The camera, set to capture movement, flashed to the door as Tobias rolled inside. Nick and the alien woman walked into a room with a table in the middle, and a console on one wall. Everything was bright, clean, and blindingly white. I could only assume a sterile environment from the cleanliness. What happened? Why did you crash? The woman looked sad. She helped Nick on the table and turned to the console. We picked up those men you left hoping to help them get home. She touched the console and arms unfolded from the ceiling above the table. We didn't know you had left them because they were violent. They acted normal for a bit until we flew low to see if we could cut away for you and the ice. They attacked our pilots and damaged our flight controls as we hovered over your ship. They were killed by an explosion of energy from the console that they had damaged. We barely made it without more damage. As the arms worked on Nick, Tobias barged in, intent on killing his brother. The knife hit one of the mechanical arms and a bright flash overwhelmed the camera. When it cleared, a nightmare scene appeared. The woman lay on the floor, motionless. Nick was transformed. Shorter and thicker, almost armored looking. But the real nightmare was standing front and center of the feed. It was the demon that I saw, horned head and white skin pulled over bone. I believe this was Tobias, and the bot must have malfunctioned and changed them. Tobias became the darkness in his soul, and Nick, well, I don't know. In the corner of the screen, the woman stirred pulling something from her pocket. She aimed at Tobias, who screamed and fled. The camera switched to follow as he headed deeper into the ship. Switching back, Nick stirred and the alien woman examined him. In a language not of this earth, she sent the gray beans out in the hall. She handed Nick a red coat from a closet in the wall. Thank you, Beth. What has happened to me? She shook her head in sadness, tinged her beautiful features. "'Your brother and his madness attacked you as the medbot healed your wounds,' she paused. A tear rolled down her face. "'I'm sorry. It has changed you and your brother.' The robot glitched when his knife damaged a circuit. "'You are no longer fully human, Nick.' "'The medbot mixed DNA from our people into your cells.' and it made you immortal and armored to protect you from the creature your brother has become. Your brother's madness is now manifest. He is what you call in your legends a Krampus because this image was in his head when the machine overloaded and it changed him into that image. You mean my brother is now a demon? Nick looked bewildered by it all. Yes, and there is more. Your personality has been altered and will soon override your current state. You had a tumor in your brain and the medical robot removed it. It was in the personality area of your mind and it was responsible for your deep depression at times. Because of the damage, it did not have a chance to equalize your emotions. She looked back at the screen on the machine. You will find yourself immensely joyful at times as happy as you were ever depressed. This is too much. I can't take this. I need time to consider all of this. Nick sat in the woman. Beth sat as well. You look so much like her. I am a hybrid. I have human and alien DNA in my body, the same as you. Nick frowned, confused. She continued. Your Beth may have been one of us living among you as a test. DNA, a test. Even as a video image, I could tell Nick was bewildered by her explanation. Oh, yes, I forgot. Your science isn't there yet. She looked deep in thought. It is the building blocks of your body. It is what determines how you look, among other things. And I have this alien DNA in me now as well. Yes, your brother's ill-timed attack caused all kinds of changes to both of you that we never intended. A beep sounded and I saw her look at a device on her wrist. This gets worse. Your brother has taken a landcraft and some of the Alona with him. The video sputtered and stopped. What were Alona? More writing on the next page. It looked like Nick's but with different timestamps. 24th of December 1867. After a lot of adjustment, my new life has purpose. Krampus plots humanity's destruction. The Alana were members of the white-skinned alien race who opposed the Grey Elves' idea of peaceful integration with humans. Beth has helped me get used to the new abilities of my body. I can change shape and nothing can puncture my skin. Our spy in my brother's camp reported Krampus has found a way to corrupt already naughty children and use them to build his army. He is a machine that moves a substance similar in shape to coal through the ether to them, and it takes over their mind and steals their soul. Luckily for us, its power supply is broken and takes a year to charge. Bess says the machine is a teleporter and we also have one. I went back to the camp and found survivors. The ship was destroyed by ice and the men were at the end of their supplies when I found them. Beth and I made them believe in the danger the world was in, and we came upon a unique plan. They are heading back to Germany and to the rest of the world to boost the legends of Santa and warn the world of Krampus. One of the men is Oliver Kringle, a relative of my wife Beth, and a hybrid as well. He had followed us, believing one of us was the murderer of his cousin. Kringle. That's my last name. What the hell? His anger over what Tobias did to my Beth mirrored my own, and his confusion over the new Beth beside me was understandable. She has taken a liking to me, and I have to her, so I hope she will be my new Mrs. Claus. Kringle will lead the German Contingent getting Europe prepared. Using our teleporter, I can once a year send out a blacking device to protect the children of the world. This device will be hidden in toys so the children will keep them closed for the year. Our equipment detects the minds of good children and helps protect them from Krampus' poison. For the rest, we shall build a list and check it twice for naughty or nice children. I will visit each on Christmas night to be sure I prevent Krampus's coal from stealing the children's souls. So Santa is real. No way. The 25th of December, 1868. My good night. I saved many children. Our devices, disguised as toys, went out to everyone that we could detect and last. Beth is my management, she keeps the elves working building the toy disguises for our device to prevent Krampus's coal from corrupting the children of the world. Some of the elves have fixed the escape ship. They are launching tomorrow to return home, and bring us up before Krampus's elves figure out how to bypass our current device. I hope we can keep his efforts to destroy the world contained, until they can return in a few thousand years. The 25th of December, 1939. Krampus has the whole world at war. Men, evil and good, fighting in trenches far from their homes. Krampus is gaining power. We have lost Kringle's network. I am proceeding as usual and hope that it is enough to prevent the apocalypse. I know what happened. During World War II, my family fled Germany to America My great-great-great-grandfather was killed helping the rest of us escape from the Gestapo squad. He was an electronics genius who didn't want his inventions stolen. Most of the entries after this are claws repeating how they once again stopped Krampus. But several entries have interesting information. 25th of December, 2018 The world is losing faith in Santa Claus. I had to spend a lot of this year finding new allies in the battle for the world. I fell into Krinkle's descendants and one is like his ancestors. He will make a great leader of a new American team supporting our efforts against Krampus. The 23rd of December, 2019. What is he planning this year? A strong energy signal is building at his base. Human satellites will soon see these emissions. We have to stop them before it draws too much attention. Our elves are working hard, getting toys ready for transport. The teleportation system is charging. The elves fueled these sled engines in case I needed to do reconnaissance. The 24th of December, 2019. There is an exploration team out there in the snow. Beth had pinpointed them today. I went out in the sled to get a look at them. The journal stopped here, because we shot at him. My tent ripped open. Krampus stood there growling. The bladed staff he killed Roan with glowed, ready to take my head off. Shots rang out and I saw Johnson firing his rifle at Krampus as he advanced on my tent. With a roar, Krampus turned and ran Johnson down, slicing his head from his body which continued firing for a moment. Krampus laughed. He advanced toward me. Slicing the air in front of him with every step. I couldn't move. He was going to kill me, and I couldn't lift the journal that I still held. Behind me, something came to rest. Krampus stopped his blade just out of reach of my head. Hold, Tobias. You shall not kill this man tonight. I unfroze and turned. A jolly fat man in red stood behind me. He tapped his staff on the ground. Chris Kringle, stand behind me. Krampus shall have no power here tonight. Growls came from behind the monster and miniature versions of him fanned out. Nick, you were always a fool. I killed your wife and our team and had it not been for the mess with the healing room, I would have ended your miserable life as well. Curse you and your luck. Krampus rushed Nick. Sparks flew where his blade was parried with Santa's staff Nick pushed Krampus away like he was a rag doll, and swung his staff in the air. Lightning rained on the miniature Krampuses. Tobias screamed in pain. Damn you, Nick. One day, I will end you in the elves. Krampus jumped and disappeared into a light swooping in from the clouds. Nick and I were alone. The camp was silent. Was I the only one left? Nicholas Claus, I read your book. I am grateful for being saved, yet I have questions. I held the book up. Why did you mention my family name here? Your ancestor, Oliver Kringle, was a hybrid like Beth, but neither of them knew this. He sat in an undamaged chair. As you know, after the World War broke out, Your great-great-great-grandfather moved his whole family to America. Only someone with enough DNA of the greys can operate greys technology. One of your great cousins had enough alien genes in him to help my work. We made sure one of you with the ability would always be around to operate our detection systems. He pointed to the book that I was still holding out. You see, you can use our tech or opening that book would have killed you. You mean the owner of K-Tech Inc. is a relative of mine? I said as well. Why have I not been told that I was related? Santa laughed. It was a jolly sound. Chris, I am sorry, but there is much I cannot explain right now. Krampus may be back, and it is soon to be Christmas. Get back to your main camp and return to send out the toys, so I can prevent the creation of more of those things you saw tonight. Those were children? No. They are created by these souls of children. A child's soul is a powerful tool for my brother to create the creatures of his army. We need to go now. He rose from the chair and touched my arm. We were in a sled in a blank, which was being pulled by twelve mechanical reindeer. Seconds later, we landed twenty miles away, outside the main base. His eyes twinkled. He put a finger to the side of his nose. Goodbye, Chris. We may meet again. He pointed at the journal. Keep my knowledge safe. One day you may be called to carry on the fight. Advanced knowledge will be helpful, I believe. He pulled out another journal and touched it to the one that I held. I now have a backup, so I won't lose the information. It is important to always remember our humanity. With a wink and a smile, his sled blasted into the night. I heard him yell as he sped away. Merry Christmas to all and to all a good night. So, I am here writing this to let everybody know that Santa is real, and so is Krampus. You better watch out. Krampus is coming for our children, and they better be nice so Santa can protect them every Christmas night. I had no choice but to follow the tiny flashing light. Written by J.D. McGregor The haze hung so heavy that it felt like I could stumble through for an eternity and never come out the other side. So many questions swirled inside of my head that I couldn't slow them down and take the time to examine them one by one. I knew for certain that I was lost and that my body was broken down and frigid. I trudged uphill barefoot in the snow on a slope that seemed to be getting steeper all the time. My vision was so blurred that I couldn't focus on an object five feet in front of my face. My body was in constant pain, but I couldn't pinpoint exactly where the damage had been done. It felt like I was splitting apart all over like my body had been beaten on the outside and punctured from within. I must have still been up in the mountains. It was the only place with inclines like that, and where the snow had already fallen so early into the fall season. I was excited at first when Benjamin had invited me up, but admittedly apprehensive to meet his family. Immediate family members accepting my lifestyle choices was a world that I knew nothing about. I was so nervous that my arm was shaking when I dropped my travel bag in the trunk of Benjamin's Mercedes sedan while he idled in my driveway. Benjamin had a way of soothing me and making me feel like I had blown everything out of proportion. He was always there to drag me back down to earth when I started getting restless. He went into great length about how progressive his parents were, how this was nothing new to them and I was stressing over nothing. I swear that he could put me at ease in any situation, even when he first rounded the bar to take the empty stool next to mine, when he first asked me out for coffee, when I was too shy to ask myself even though I wanted to so badly. He even caught me with the little things, like when I freaked out over whether or not I'd remember to lock my front door, More, when I thought that the same SUV had been following us for over an hour since we had got off the interstate. No one had ever made me feel so safe and it made me love him like I had never loved anyone else before. It didn't matter that we had only been together for a couple of months. There were no doubts in my mind that he was the one for me. So where was he while I stumbled through the snow and the darkness? I still couldn't make out any distinct shapes in my immediate surroundings. I looked up and squinted to see if I could see where the mountain had topped out. It was helpless. I only saw a rainbow of white stretching up until it collided with the blackness of the sky, somewhere way above. It didn't feel like I had a ton of options, so I kept moving blindly upwards without any direction or purpose that I could recall. I wanted so badly to know how exactly I could have ended up in such an unfortunate position. If I was outside barefoot, dressed in a tattered clothing, then I surely couldn't have been that far away from the house. I mean, I could only have made it so far in such a state, at least on my own accord. That was unless I had done something irrational like toboggan down the mountain on my belly, or gone for a solo walk and pushed myself to a state of disrepair and desperation. It wasn't likely. All I knew for certain was that something inside of me compelled me to travel upwards. Soon, something finally changed in my vision, which might have helped me find the explanation. Somewhere way up there, I saw tiny flashing lights. There were two of them blinking in succession, One was red and the other was blue. I rubbed my eyes over and over like it was some kind of winter mirage, but they persisted their flashing in the darkness. I couldn't tell how far up they were or however long it would take me to get there, but they served as something to pursue at the very least. Perhaps they were mounted on the back of Benjamin's house in a place that I hadn't seen. Maybe they were markers to alert you of the driveway entrance from the road, but I didn't remember seeing any on the way in. I tried my best to picture what the lot had looked like. I remembered it looking immaculate, the type of mountain chalet you would see in a travel brochure. It was built uphill from the road. The driveway winded up towards the house in an S-shape. It had two stories with floor-to-ceiling windows all along the front, and built high enough that you could see above the trees and directly over the canyon miles away. Benjamin's family was absolutely loaded, and never once did he tip me off that he came from such wealthy beginnings. Humbleness. Another alluring quality in a man. The masonry of the stone pathway leading up to the door looked like it had been completed earlier in the day. His parents peeked at us from the kitchen, with warm smiles on their faces when we walked in and kicked the snow off of our boots. They waved their palms down their aprons and both approached to shake my hand and tell us that they were so relieved that we had arrived when we did. The forecast had predicted high winds and a heavy snowfall that they worried might trigger an avalanche close to the house. There had already been two up in the mountains that year. Benjamin's sister, who couldn't have been more than ten, ran down from her room and dodged my handshake to tightly hug me around the waist. She said Benjamin only had had great things to say about me and wanted to know why I hadn't already come to visit sooner. I had been there 30 seconds and it felt more like home than my actual home did. At first, I struggled to find words, to thank them for their hospitality, let alone introduce myself. They all chuckled and told me not to be nervous his mother said that everything was okay, and that I wasn't the first handsome young man that Benjamin had brought home for them, to have the pleasure of meeting. I envied that family. Maybe I could have become a part of it one day. Benjamin grabbed me by the forearm and led me into the living room. They had a flame half my height raging in the stone fireplace on the far wall. Hot appetizers were packed into a large rectangular platon on the coffee table. I distinctly remember walking right up to the giant window that overlooked the canyon as the first snowflakes drifted down from the night sky and pressed against the glass. I'm sure it was the beginnings of the same snowfall coming down on me while I trudged up the side of the mountain. It was maybe a little heavier, but still that pleasant kind of fluff that was not so different than I remember seeing. Little rocks started to poke out in the terrain They served as useful points of reference once I was close enough to see them, and some were high enough for me to clutch onto and use for support. I decided to make sure that I didn't step in the wrong crevice somewhere and injure myself any further. Navigating through the haze and pain was difficult enough on its own. Any further damage and I would have doomed myself to die on the side of the mountain. It was already going to be a stretch to make it as it was. I looked up again and saw the lights still flashing, marginally bigger in my vision than they had shined before. I saw no other option but to continue pressing on. There was a flicker of excitement in thinking that blue and red lights most likely meant an emergency vehicle was up there. It was reasonable enough to believe that they were there to search for me. So if someone had called for help, then what had happened exactly once I was safely inside the house? Benjamin's family and I were all settled in and comfortable around the coffee table. The pot roast, mouth-watering aromas, drifted in from the kitchen. I sat on the end of a three-seater next to his sister, and Benjamin leaned back on the leather recliner across from me. He sat, just like he always did, with his feet up on the main cushion, and his knees an inch in front of his chin. He smiled at me as to say, I told you so and I had never been so delighted to be wrong. I thought maybe it would be the night that we would end up making love for the first time. For as loving and compassionate to the heart Benjamin possessed, he had been sparse with his physical affection up until that point. He teased me with the idea of doing it in his childhood bedroom upstairs, which still had his single mattress beneath the window, and its own incredible view of the mountains. It would have been a dream if things hadn't ended up that way. In honesty, I hadn't been bothered by waiting so long. I liked the suspense, if anything. It made Benjamin feel different from all the others. Of course, things hadn't played out that way. The last thing that I could remember with certainty was his father politely excusing himself to check on the roast. And then blackness... Something must have intervened around then to cut the flow of memories. It had to have been catastrophic. Had someone barged in? Had there been some kind of explosion? It didn't seem likely. The pain gradually gave way to numbness. It was relieving but wouldn't bode well for me reaching the flashing lights. I had lost all sensation in my feet and the ends of my fingers which I was constantly digging in and out of the snow for balance at every chance I got. Somewhere inside of me, the urge to carry on started to dwindle. I thought how pleasant it would be to take a little break and curl up into a ball if only to rest my eyes for a couple of minutes. I could even build a little shelter in the snow and then continue after my body had enough time to rest and heal. I took a deep breath and focused myself as best as I could. I forced these submissive thoughts out of my mind, knowing that stopping for any significant amount of time would mean never making it off the side of the mountain. I held my eyes closed and counted to ten before opening them up again. Perhaps it was a figment of my imagination, but for a brief moment, I could have sworn that I saw clearly when I peered up to the flashing lights again. They were much bigger which meant that I had made significant progress. Now, I could make out the general space around them. The terrain looked like it flattened out to an even plane. I thought that I saw an outline of a vehicle, but I was still too far away to say for sure. The thoughts of sitting in the back of a police cruiser made me feel warm. It was enough to keep me putting one leg in front of the other. While I kept climbing, I could never keep my mind from searching back through the fragmented memories to see if there was something that I had overlooked. It was hard to believe that I hadn't been forcibly put in that position. Had there been anyone else in that house aside from his family, was there someone who knew we were headed up there and didn't like it? I suppose that it was still possible that I had been foolish enough to do this to myself. It could have been an honest mistake. Maybe I had felt brave enough to sneak away from the house and enjoy one of these cigarettes that I had stashed in my coat pocket. Maybe I had wandered a little too far, and lost my footing and slid all the way down and fallen unconscious on the way. It was plausible enough. The slope started to steepen sharply beneath my feet. I figured it would stay that way until I reached the plateau, which I was sure I had seen in the area of the flashing lights. The last stretch was going to be the hardest but certainly not impossible after all the anguish I had pushed myself through to make it up to that point. From that point on, I kept my eyes on the flashing lights, and with each passing step, they got closer and more real. The details of these shapes around them started to come into focus. There were big spaces between the trees, and a vehicle parked next to a shed. It didn't look like Benjamin's Mercedes, more like an SUV. The movement caught my eye. There was a black mass scaling up one of the thicker tree branches close to the middle of the clearing. It seemed awfully high for someone to try a casual climb during a snowy winter night. I tried to call out, but the curdle that escaped my mouth was so subdued it sounded barely more than a whisper. I was so cold that all the feeling from my lower half was gone. I thought that at any moment my legs wouldn't react to these signals from my brain, urging them to ignore their damage and press on up for only a couple of meters more. I was lucky in the end. I did finally reach flat ground before my body finally failed. Not much was working in terms of extremities, but at least I still had my senses when I finally fell face flat in the snow. Frozen grass crunched beneath my cheek. Some of the dark shapes, mostly the smaller ones, had started to move. There were four of them in total. The black mass in the tree moved its head and then started to shimmy back down towards the ground. A single rope with a ring around the bottom hung from the branch where it had just been perched. It wavered from side to side in the gentle breeze coming up the mountain. I heard the voices next. None of them were perfectly clear, but still so easily recognizable. They came right up close until their boots were right next to my head. A big glob of spit flew down and landed next to my eye. This one's got some fight in him, Ben. You sure you can pick him? Tied the rope just as tight as always did. He just kept squirming once I had him up here. Benjamin's voice rang clearly in my ear. There was no mistaking it was his. Except now, it was in a tone like I'd never heard it before. There was a loathing in it. You're lucky that he came back up in this direction, boy. This one is strong. He ate more than a couple of your mother's special mozzarella sticks, too. We would have been in big trouble if he made it up near the road. I told you the police lights and the Range Rover would come in handy one day. So, we're gonna string this one back up so he can go out like the others. I don't feel like climbing up again. A boot pressed down against my shoulder and started to push me back down in the direction that I had just come from. He won't make it back up a second time. There are no memories of that night. I suppose I have a knack for forgetting in the mountains. The next that I can recall was waking up warm and comfortable in the search and rescue facility. When they finally went up to the house Benjamin had brought us, it looked like it had been abandoned the day before. There was nothing left, no weapons, no DNA left for anyone to find and analyze. There was only one place that they found physical evidence. It was right at the bottom of the canyon where I had started climbing. They dug more than a dozen bodies out of the snow down there. I have seen God I have not been the same since. Written by Ngobi. Growing up in a Christian family, I was taught to read my Bible, pray before I go to sleep each night, and go to church on Sunday. For most of my life, I followed all of this without flaw. I prayed, I read, I sang the worship songs, and I became very close with everyone at my church. Me and my family grew up in a small town in northern Nebraska. It wasn't much. No more than 2,000 people. But it was my home. I still remember waking up every morning as a boy to my mom cooking fresh baked eggs and biscuits before school. Get up, Will! She would yell half-heartedly from the kitchen. My dad would be sitting at the kitchen table reading the newspaper and drinking his coffee while my sister helped set the table. This was my life, and I loved every second of it. I would look up to the small ceramic cross that we had hanging on the wall, and I would say a silent prayer to myself before I ate. When I turned 18, I had saved up enough money from my job as a waiter at the town's local restaurant to move into a small apartment in Lincoln, Nebraska with a few of my friends. The Sunday before we all left, we went to our final church session at the local church. As the pastor preached away, I remember something very specific that he said. Heaven is a glorious place. While no one can say for sure what it exactly looks like, we do know that when you are there, you are in the presence of God. There is nothing more magical and perfect than to be standing at his feet, Little did I know how perfectly accurate and inaccurate that was. About two months after moving to Lincoln, I had finally landed my first job. A security guard at an entertainment district not too far from where I lived. The pay was good and most importantly, it kept me on my feet. It wasn't really an exciting job, but I enjoyed walking around looking at all the buildings and laughing as drunk people stumbled out of bars. One night in particular, however, I ran into a man that had clearly had way too much to drink and was most likely on something stronger as well. He was causing a lot of trouble and making people uncomfortable. I immediately dialed 911, explained the situation to the dispatcher, and then approached him to hopefully handle the situation until the police arrived. "'Sir, I'm going to have to ask you to leave.' We can't have you freaking people out and making a scene, I told him. He looked up at me, his eyes clearly glazed over from a pill of some sort. What what are you talking about, kid? I'm just having some fun. No, sir, what you're doing isn't fun. You're bothering people and causing trouble. The police are already on their way. Please leave. This visibly upset him. You called the police on me. Who the hell do you think you are? Sir, calm down. If you leave now, you won't be arrested. Get out of my face. You can't tell me to leave. You don't have the right. I saw that he was growing more and more upset, as he looked like he was about to get physical. In order to stop this from happening, I took a step towards him and attempted to grab his arm so he wouldn't hurt himself or anyone else. As I took my first step, in the blink of an eye, he reached into his pocket, pulled something out, and boom, everything went black. I awoke in a cold sweat, my heart beating out of my chest. At first, I couldn't see anything. It was pitch black. Hello, I called out. Mush, my child. A booming voice called back to me. You're safe now. Who's there? Why can't I see anything? I screamed. The voice laughed, shaking the ground beneath me, which felt like a hard, damp concrete. You are not allowed to see me. Even as souls, the human mind cannot comprehend laying eyes on celestial beings. Even in death, you would be rendered insane. Even in death... Celestial beings, I thought to myself. I couldn't wrap my head around what was happening. Had I died? Are you God? I shakily asked the unseen voice. Oh no, but I can take you to him. All souls must answer to the All-Father. Why can't I see you? I asked. I demanded answers. All of this was happening so fast. I had grown up a Christian and loved all things biblical, but this wasn't how I had envisioned it. There were no pearly gates, no feeling of unconditional love, no bright lights with angels singing. Instead, all it was, was darkness, fear, and confusion. (laughs) I already told you, curious one. If you were to lay eyes on me, your conscience would be so overwhelmed that it would collapse in on itself, reducing you to nothing. At any moment, I could remove the void I placed in front of you and allow you to gaze upon me. But we love our children and would never do something so cruel to them. You see, we are not how you humans have portrayed us to be. Large versions of yourselves with wings and harps, What we are cannot be put into human words. The only way that we can be described is in a language long forgotten by humanity that was last used during the times of Adam and Eve. These words are too great beyond your understanding that if I spoke them, the same fate would await you as if you were to see me with your eyes. I couldn't comprehend this. This was too much. I wanted out. I wanted to be alive again. I feared what this was. This wasn't heaven. This was hell. And if this truly was heaven, I couldn't bear to see what hell was like. What happens now? I asked, my voice shaking so much that my words were barely understandable. What happens now is that you will be judged. Come, the All-Father awaits you. His voice was so unspeakably loud. When he spoke, the ground shook and the air around me shattered as if one million clamps of thunder all boomed at once. I still only saw nothing but black. At that moment, I felt a force wrap around my body. It wasn't like a hand or something physical grabbing me. I can't describe it other than the most powerful force in the world surrounding me. Stronger than the force of every nuclear weapon in the world exploding at once. Stronger than every cannon that every military had ever created, firing their guns at the same time. It was so extraordinary and powerful that I almost couldn't take it. Relax, my child. You will not be harmed. If I wanted to, my grip could eradicate the universe. I am merely cradling you. This brought me no comfort. The thought of a being so astronomically powerful that it could collapse the universe holding me in its grasp made my heartbeat skyrocket. I could hear his thundering footsteps. I wanted nothing more than to see who or what it was leading me to my judgment. "'What's your name?' I asked the unseen figure, who lay just beyond my vision." hiding behind an intentional void put in front of my eyes. My real name could not be comprehended by you. However, the name the humans have called me for centuries is Uriel. Uriel, one of the seven archangels that I had learned about growing up, was currently holding me in his grip, leading me to my judgment. I didn't know what to say. My mind was racing within a thousand thoughts a second, and just as I had begun to ask another question, the powerful force that I had felt vanished. I felt myself sitting on yet another cold, damp concrete surface. However, just like before, all I could see was pure nothingness. "'We are here,' Uriel boomed. "'This is where we depart.' I cannot enter the chamber of the All-Father with you For just as you would not be able to comprehend seeing me No being to ever exist can comprehend seeing the All-Father Your inability to see will be temporarily removed So you can find the entrance to the chamber of the All-Father However, once you step inside it You will be instantly placed back on you for your own protection This baffled me How powerful and inconceivable could something be as to be able to render an archangel insane if I were to look at it? Why do you call him the All-Father? I thought his name was God, I asked. This made Uriel chuckle. Just as your people call me Uriel, you seem to have found a name for the All-Father as well. Enough questions, your time to be judged is now. It was at that moment, like a switch being flipped, that my vision was restored. I was alone. Uriel was nowhere to be found. I found myself in an astronomically large hallway. The ceiling was so far up that I could just barely see it, and the walls on either side were miles apart. It was dark, but illuminated by balls of light floating around near the top. The walls were made of stone with moss growing from them. It reminded me of an ancient temple, one grand and pure but weathered away throughout the years. At that moment, the fact hit me like a pound of bricks. I was about to be in the presence of the most powerful being in the universe, the one that had created everything from scratch, including me. Instead of the love and joy that I was taught I would feel, the most intense feeling of anxiety and dread rushed over me. I couldn't do it. I couldn't. It was too much, and all too fearful. After several minutes of pacing back and forth, I walked up to the massive doors that lay right in front of me. There was no way that I was going to be able to push those things open on my own. They were the size of buildings. Without expecting any results, I lightly pushed on the doors. Just then, the giant doors swung open, and in the most powerful gust of wind I had ever experienced, I was thrusted into the room. My vision instantly went black, and once again, I was left alone in darkness. All I could hear was my breathing and the thumping of my heart. I was so afraid. Normally in this situation, I would pray... But who would I pray to? I was standing in the chamber of the one that I had learned to pray to all my life, and instead of easing my fears, all it did was enhance them. A sudden loud groaning noise along with an ear-shattering echo, and then a smash filled the room. Right as the smash occurred, I felt a force so intense fill up the room that I could barely stand. Have you ever held two magnets together and felt the magnetic force between them? It was like that, but to an incomprehensible degree. I struggled to keep my balance. I couldn't fight this force any longer. I collapsed to my knees. I was under so much intense pressure that my head began to spin rapidly. I vomited. I cried out in pain as I could feel my bones begin to crush. You cannot die a second time. You will be fine. A voice 100 times louder than Uriel's boomed throughout the chamber. The voice was indescribable. It was as if one million people were whispering at once. But even at a whisper, it managed to be the loudest sound my ears had ever heard. I find it funny, you humans. You live your life chasing reassurance, comfort... The thought of perfection. Is this not what you expected? Did you expect to be met with perfection? Is this not your idea of perfection? Being in my presence is perfection, even if it is not what your human mind thought it to be. Where am I? I barely managed to squeak out, still being overwhelmed by the immense pressure of the forest that held me down. You, child, are in heaven, at the foot of what your people have deemed the Lord. I am the All-Father. I have created all. I have ended all. I have conjured a million universes and destroyed a million more before yours. And I will create and destroy millions after yours as well. I was never born. I was never created. I have been here before existence itself. And I will be here long after it perishes. Existence is a mere phase in my timeline. The idea of life, beings, the natural and supernatural, consciousness, all but a mere second of a phase on my timeline. The angels that observe me, the souls that reside in my kingdom, all will perish after this eternity is over. But I am everlasting. I have no beginning and no end. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. That last part I remembered. In Revelations 22, 13, I was in the spot where those words were first spoke eons ago. As the words echoed through my very being, every fiber of my, every cell of my body, I managed to muster up the only words that I'd the strength to form. What happens to me now? I said brokenly. Now you see my face, thundered the All-Father. The most intense fear I'd ever had the tragedy of feeling shot through my body. I couldn't contain myself. I began to scream in panic. I was yelling at the essence of all things, where time began, where it went where every atom of every universe of every plane of existence had come from. But I didn't care. I screamed with all my might. No, you can't. Yurio told me if I do, I'll become nothing. You're supposed to be loving. You're supposed to forgive us. You're supposed to accept us into your kingdom with unconditional love. I was raised in lies. This isn't love. This is fear. Why are you doing this to me? "'Mosh, child,' the voice echoed, instantly drowning mine out with no effort at all. "'I had planned this moment trillions of eternities before your existence and universe was ever created. Do you truly believe I've implanted every zeptosecond 2nd of it out?' I instantly lost my ability to speak. I tried to scream, but my mouth couldn't move. It was being held shut by an unseeable and unfeelable forest. Now gaze upon who I am. It started off small. The tiniest, noticeable light at the very reaches of my vision. It slowly grew. And as it grew, I saw the All-Father. It was everything. Everything that ever was and everything that ever will be. Everything that didn't happen and could have happened every alternate timeline that will ever exist, and every timeline that will happen. Every atom, every cell, every grain of dust, every living being, every fiber of every atom from the beginning of existence itself, it all stared into my soul. I thought that I would go insane, but some unseen force was keeping me there. I saw me, my future children, my future children's children, Every possible person that I would ever meet, and every possible person the people I would have met will ever meet. It was everything, a term that up until this point I believed I could comprehend. It was beautiful, but so unbelievably terrifying. I was looking at the face of God. He was no being, he was no sentient creature, he was nothing that I could ever imagine comprehending. I began to cry. I don't know why, but tears began uncontrollably rolling down my cheek. I saw the end of everything, and I saw the All-Father outlast it all. Staring down at his beautiful creations throughout eons and eons and eons begin to fade away. I saw him at the beginning of time forming the first universe, and I saw him at the end destroying the last. He spoke. The booming whisper of a million voices... I am everything and I will always be everything even when there is nothing I will remain forever the most amazing curse ever to exist right after the All Father was done speaking the pressure, the booming noises the intensity was all swept from me my bones no longer felt like they were crushing I could breathe again I slowly sat up Nervous as to what might happen next. The silence was deafening. I couldn't see or hear. All of a sudden, in a voice that sounded like it was right to my ear, the Allfather spoke again. Your time is not now. Everything has a purpose, and yours was just fulfilled. It was at that moment that a blinding light struck me, and I heard the muffled voices of the EMTs "'We have a pulse. We got him.' "'I dozily looked around, my vision still blurry. "'There was a crowd of people surrounding me, "'and EMTs staring down with relieved expressions on their faces. "'The ambulance lights flashed in a melodic daze. "'Once I became aware, I sat up in a panic and began to scream. "'The EMTs struggled to restrain me. "'I was in a manic state.' I heard one of the EMTs yell, Hit him with the diazepam." I felt a pinch and everything went black again. I woke up in the hospital the next day. My family surrounding me with tears streaming down their faces. He's alive. Thank God he's alive. Thank God. Thank God. Those words rung in my ears like an out of tune guitar. I winced at hearing them. It's been two years since the incident. I made a full physical recovery, however, my mind is scarred. I quit my job, moved away from Lincoln to New York, and did my best to get away from everything that reminded me of my old life. I haven't spoken to my parents since I was released from the hospital. My friends have tried to reach out, but I've never responded. I became addicted to drugs, hopping from house to house just trying to find an escape. All I know is that I fear death more than ever now, knowing what lies beyond, knowing that there is no everlasting light, no love and warmth, no reunion with family members. It's dark, scary, and empty. To this day, I still have no idea why God decided to show me his face or what my purpose was. But all I know is that ever since seeing his face, my life has no value anymore. I know exactly what will happen, when it will happen, how me, my family, friends, and people I have never met will die, as well as the exact date and time they will. I know what tomorrow, the next day, and what every year until time collapses will bring. I type this out to warn you all, Upon death, you will be greeted by beings that you cannot see, and judged by a being who was sour at us in the universe for cursing him to rule beyond existence. He will remain once nothing else does. When the very idea of nothingness becomes no more, he will remain. He always will be. i found a history book from the future, The chapter for 2021 is terrifying. Written by Weird Bryce Guy. Knowledge, specifically foreknowledge, can either be a gift or a curse. Oftentimes, when dealing with issues that you would like to avoid or mitigate, it's a gift. You use the foresight to plan and to prepare to assess and counteract a problem before it comes to head. But there are other times when foreknowledge is detrimental, when knowing the future to even the slightest degree can be disastrous and terrifying. Ignorance isn't always bliss, but sometimes it's better for you. If sanity is something you care about maintaining... I found this out when I got a peek at the future of 2021. I work at a coffee shop. It's nothing special. Just your ordinary cafe staffed by dreary-faced millennials just trying to make a few bucks to fund college. Or to simply get by in an increasingly harrowing economy. I get along fine with my coworkers. That is to say, we don't actively hate each other, but we aren't friends either. We each have our own lives, our own sensibilities, our own perspectives on the world and those in it. I explain all this because if circumstances had been different, if my co workers and I had actually held disdain for each other, or were entirely unsociable, I might have never read the contents of that awful book. I might have been spared the horrific pre science imparted by it. I was sweeping the floor at the end of the day. My normal closing duty, when I saw a piece of trash stuck beneath one of the table legs near the front of the cafe, it was lodged beneath the back leg, so I had to stoop down and pry it free. While down there, I happened to spot another object half hidden beneath a projection on the wall, in which a heating unit is housed. It took considerable exertion. I've stretched maybe twice since graduating high school four years ago before I finally reached it. I pulled it free and slowly straightened up, my back already aching from the prolonged uncomfortable positioning. I sat in a chair and put the object on the table. It was a book covered in dust and crumbs. It was old, very old, and bound in a thick red leather. The title was unreadable, having been faded by time or irreparably marred by dust and grime. I knew that a nearby bookstore had closed down recently, although I had first doubted that the book could have come from that store. It seemed aged beyond anything a relatively modern bookshop might sell. And yet I couldn't remember seeing anyone reading such a peculiar book in the four months that I had worked at the cafe. My co-workers were busy cleaning the machines, listening to music and generally paying no attention to me. I was free to go once I had swept and mopped and I rarely said any goodbyes before leaving. Confident that a brief break in my duties would not be noticed, I wiped the dusting crumbs from the book and opened it. The words were illegible and doubly startling. They had clearly been handwritten, and yet the writing was so stylized, so consistently immaculate, that I was actually mesmerized by the unique and impeccable penmanship. and Despite being entirely incapable of understanding the words, I flipped through the pages, amazed at how the words flowed with a peculiar rhythm and seemed to contain great meaning, a message of a deep thought that I suspected would still puzzle me even if I were able to read it. I must have lost track of time, being so absorbed in the mysterious book, because I was suddenly startled by the question. What are you reading? My three co-workers stood in front of me with expressions of confusion or amusement. I had never read in the shop before, so it was probably a weird sight seeing me so engrossed by a book. I explained how I had found it and turned the book around so they could see the beautiful, though indecipherable words... Each in turn made a guess at the language of origin, with Latin, Greek, and even Spanish being suggested. And clearly, as you'll soon come to know, none of us are scholars. And yet even with my monolingual basicness, I was sure that none of the words were of a language that I had ever seen before. I said as much and my co-workers begrudgingly agreed after scanning the pages I saw the excitement grow in their eyes as they poured over the sentences, which were separated crisply, perfectly, despite the absence of pre-established page lines. Without asking them to, and actually happy that they had done so, they each pulled up a chair to the table to sit around the enigmatic book, dilated as flat as the ancient binding would allow, and turned it so that it faced them. Sheila, my immediate supervisor and keyholder of the cafe, flipped through the pages and then passed it to Derek, who did the same. Ashton followed their movements but did not take the book herself. Despite her obvious fascination, her germophobic tendencies still prevailed, and she refused to touch something that had been on the floor and covered in debris for who knows how long. When everyone had thoroughly examined the book... I pulled it back in front of me, feeling somewhat responsible for, if not oddly attached to, the arcane tome. We all agreed that nothing could be gleaned from the writing. I got on my phone but realized the futility in trying to manually translate the words into English. None of the bizarre characters were present on my phone's keyboard. I searched through my app store and found an app that lets you upload a picture of text for instant translation. But a few minutes later, I uninstalled the app after it had failed to provide any director-related translation for these strangely written words. Momentarily stumped, I googled the book's general description, but nothing came up that seemed appropriately applicable for that particular text. Ashton, still avoiding direct contact with it, pointed out that the book's story, if it were a narrative, seemed incomplete. The basis of this observation being that the same format of writing present throughout spanned even the entirety of the last page. It was as if the author had desperately needed to provide as much information as possible, leaving no space for any supplemental acknowledgments, publication details, or afterward. Derek, the most rationally minded, or perhaps the least imaginative of us, suggested that maybe there was nothing to be learned, maybe it was a nonsensical diary of some mentally deranged person. It being left in the shop, forgotten, and not once asked about, as far as any of us could remember, seemed to support this argument as we assume that a mentally unhinged person might not care about the loss of one volume of a series of manic ramblings. I would have agreed if the writing hadn't been so stylish and if the language in which it was written hadn't seemed so authentic. The lettering was consistent throughout the book. There wasn't a randomness to the character choices, as you might think to find in a book written by someone not altogether mentally. There was a definite ordered language present, and although I couldn't understand it, its linguistic consistency seemed to be carried along from the first page to the last. And still... The book's apparent age gave suggestions of scholarly value. It didn't seem like the property of the kind of person, insane or not, who might venture into a second-rate cafe for a cheap coffee and cookies. Derek, after listening to my reasoning, eventually agreed. And the others nodded along. Ten minutes had passed since we had all convened to study it, and yet nothing about the book's language had been ascertained. Finally, after scooting together so that we could all see it at once, we decided to try and dumbly guess at possible meanings of words. I knew, and I think the others knew as well, that it was logically pointless, that without context or a key, nothing could be translated into our language. But there was a certain vague desire, a palpable impulse, that arose within me, and presumably the others. To work towards gaining some knowledge about the book and its contents. All huddled together, I reopened the book before us, and when eight eyes simultaneously peered at the first page, something truly profound happened. We understood the words. It was unlike anything that I had ever seen or heard about before. The moment that our sights touched the page, we were each captivated. Enchanted by the bewitching inscriptions, which were translated instantly as our shock widened eyes moved from word to word. Our minds too had in some effable way been linked, as we kept a single measured pace. For a while none of us spoke, and the words were silently, hungrily read, the pages speedily turned, though I cannot say with certainty who it was that performed the latter action. Eight eyes danced across those crimson inked leaves. Four brains comprehended the terribly awesome meanings and the darker suggestions and implications beyond and beneath. Before any of us had thought to take a break from reading, we had arrived at the middle of the book. It wasn't until Sheila cried out in horror that the trance was partially broken. Ashton tore her gaze away, though Derek and I kept our eyes glued to the pages. Only slightly expanding our awareness to include the words of our co workers. Hearing Sheila's voice, though not looking at her, I listened as she said that she couldn't go on, that the things that we had read about were already so awful, so existentially dreadful, that she couldn't bear to read anymore. Ashton commiserated with her, expressing similar feelings, but even through my half awareness of the conversation, I heard the intonation of curiosity in Ashton's voice. She wanted to continue on. Derek and I had gone on ahead, though our pace had been slowed considerably, and the images that had been seen earlier, the feelings felt, were entirely absent in the newly read pages when seen by only four eyes. It seemed that without Ashton and Sheila's accompaniment, the book could only be partially read, the words legible but the meanings behind them dim or obfuscated. With greater effort, I tore my gaze away, and Derek sighed, almost in disappointment. Without a partner, the words had become unreadable to him. We all looked at each other, at last understanding how the book was meant to be read. It required at least two people for the words to transform into a readable text, three for a general meaning, and four Four people, reading altogether, could read and fully fathom the blackly apocalyptic information therein. Wordlessly, Sheila calmed down, and Ashton put an arm around her. Surprising us all, Ashton then used her other hand to turn the still-dirty book slightly towards her. Her eyes were aglow with hunger for knowledge, a deep desire to learn all that could be learned from the tome. I realized in that moment that none of us doubted the validity of the information. We were all certain that things we had read would come to pass, that the preternaturally deciphered book detailed events and humanities in near future. All in agreement, we again joined together in studying the pages. Finishing the book and peeling my eyes away was like gradually coming out of a drunken stupor. I felt mentally exhausted, emotionally drained. As if I had personally experienced the lives of countless entities, and my spirit was afterwards thrown back into my own body. In a way, that is kind of what happened. The book read almost as a historical report. It detailed events in a manner suggesting that they had already happened, and reflected with a bleak hindsight on how they might have been avoided. Several people's perspectives were related with great detail some having been darkly influential in the coming events, others merely grief-stricken or disheartened observers, bystanders to horrors and atrocities that none of us would have ever imagined occurring. Sheila, deeply disturbed by what she, what we had read, rose from her seat with some difficulty and stumbled towards the exit, tossing the store's keys onto a table before going out. Ashton looked to Derek and then to me, with eyes of deep regret, and then got up and left as well, either to join Sheila or go home herself. Derek and I stared at the table for a while, neither looking directly at the book, but thinking about it all the same. Finally, Derek spoke up, saying, We have to tell someone. I was somewhat thankful that Ashton had gone, because despite her earlier curiosity, I knew she would have staunchly argued against such an idea. Her personal hypochondriac sensibilities sometimes extended generally to topics of public safety and precaution as well. And I know that she would demand the book be hidden away, or destroyed, so that no one else could read its abysmal, soul-crushing contents. But the things that we had read, the events that it said will occur in just this year, are too terrible to withhold from humanity Widespread ignorance of this magnitude would lead to destruction. The events would happen just as they had been written. So Derek and I decided to compromise. I am going to provide a single page from the book, which is sufficiently predictive, sufficiently terrifying, to encompass the greater message of the future historical account. When we read this together, Memorized it even As the images appeared faint and ephemeral in our minds And then burned the book in the oven Here is the page It was through mankind's own inquisitiveness That the disincarnates were made real And their transcendental horrors Given substance upon the earth Humanity Ever hungry to understand itself To unravel and solve the question of existence Finally found its answer Their philosophers and scientists had worked tirelessly to solve that ultimate question, and the answer destroyed them. In the year 2021, the month is not given. Shadows upon shadows fell upon the earth, compounding, congealing, growing molten and caustic. Men drowned and boiled in the darkness given form. Their bodies grew fat and burst and these corpse-born nightmares flourished, having feasted upon the indwelling light that existed within even the most black-hearted of men. They poured from the bloated and melted forms, tread the surface of the planet, and annihilated the inhabitants, scourged these species relentlessly, mercilessly. Mankind, since it could form and dictate its own thoughts, had asked itself, What am I? How can I be? Awareness blossomed into intelligence, intelligence into sapience. Through it all, the guiding impetus, sentience, the capacity to wonder at its own existence, to differentiate itself amidst its environment, was a quality that had been unique to mankind. A quality other entities sought, or to be more accurate, were compatible with. Life elsewhere was mechanical, unthinking. It operated mindlessly, survived and propagated as nature dictated. Only man somehow had been instilled or evolved with the unknowingly coveted ability to imagine, to conceptualize, to dream. When the answer for how this came to be was uncovered, the revealed knowledge was not limited to mankind. Other entities were automatically drawn to it, as they would be to water or food, And darkness arrived first. Darkness, shadows, things which had never seen light and had thrived in the abysms between stars. Intelligent darkness, but lacking sentience. Biological machines, but when given the capacity for consideration, for analytical thought, darkness changed. A sentient darkness is an inimical darkness. Light The thing which had since darkness's conception been unfamiliar, was now known to it, and it yearned for the light. And within what species did light naturally dwell? Humanity. So, upon peeking over the shoulders of mankind's scholars and seeing that revelatory truth, darkness viewed humanity as its enemy, unworthy of the light's gifts, and laid siege to the planet and its people. A cataclysmic encroachment of corporeal shadows brought humanity to its knees, and its own unwillingness to work together, to set aside its petty differences and stand as one against the great cosmic terror, is what led to its ultimate extinction. The knowledge of man's origins would have always been uncovered. That was unpreventable. Humanity could only distract itself with technology and theatricality for so long. Eventually, the yearning to know the truth of itself emerged again, more powerful than before. What the answer was, this record cannot say. The truth, not only of human creation, but its purpose as well, has been lost forever, buried among the ashes of the civilization that discovered it. But mankind, if it had merely looked beyond its sphere and seen the darkness peeking in, could have prevented it. Prevent it? Or at least forestalled in its destruction. If you wake up at 333 33 AM, don't look outside. Written by Ryan Hates Milk. I have to find out Marie. Have to end it. Can't go on like this. I still love you, even if you don't love me back. Look after Lucy. If you wake up at 3.33 a.m., don't look outside. That's what my husband's note said, the note that he left before he vanished. Just walked out of the house in the middle of the night and never came back. Front door wide open. His car is still parked in the driveway His clothes still hanging in the cupboard He even left his toothbrush I suppose I should start at the beginning It's just hard to know exactly when that was Liam and I had been married for almost 8 years But had been having problems more than half that After our daughter was born Our sex life fizzled out And I suppose things spiraled from there We could never quite get on the same page, and every small thing would inevitably lead to massive arguments. When old frustrations don't get a chance to evaporate, they just simmer beneath the surface, and I think we were both guilty of spilling over the edges at the slightest increase of heat. Eventually, we simply found it easier to stay out of each other's way. We each had dominion over different chores. He cooked, I cleaned, and generally the only time we spent together was sleeping. One particular morning, as I stared from my dreams, I was surprised to find him sat up in bed, propped up against the backrest and staring forward into space. Normally, once Liam was awake, he was up and about. Maybe it was because of his work or his outdoor hobbies, but he had always been a morning person. He noticed that I was awake and snapped himself out of whatever thoughts he had been snared in. Everything okay? I asked. Just tired, he said, stretching like a bear out of hibernation, as if to exaggerate the point. He clambered out of bed and paused, as if hesitating whether to tell me something. As he dressed, his voice took on an air of forced casualness. I woke up in the middle of the night and checked the clock. Tossed and turned for what felt like hours and when I looked back at the clock, it was still the same time. Well, you must have misread the clock the first time, I yawned, rolling over and closing my eyes. I could hear him muttering to himself as he put his socks on, something about never believing him about anything. If my eyes were open, I would have rolled them. The rest of that day was normal enough. He took Lucy to school and went to work, and I probably would have forgotten all about it. But after we had gone to bed, I awoke to a thud in the dead of night. Barely visible in the starlight drifting around the curtains, Liam stood at the end of the bed, and I sat up, rubbing at my eyes. What are you doing? Stupid phone doesn't work, he snapped. He snapped. Not so loud, you'll wake up Lucy, I hissed. First the clock freezes, now my phone won't work, he moaned, albeit quieter. My eyes drifted to the floor where a dim rectangle of light was reflecting off the carpet. Well, it's on now. Liam stopped pacing and turned around. As he scooped up the phone, its bright screen illuminated his face, wrinkled up in confusion. Must have knocked some sense into it. Using his phone screen as a light source, he walked out of the door towards the bathroom. The clock definitely needs new batteries though, he added in a whisper. Stretching over to his side of the bed, I reached over his pillow to the bedside table and lifted his alarm clock to face me. Its black face showed a large crimson numbers on a digital display. a.m. As I squinted at it through the darkness, it flickered to 3.35 a.m. It seemed to be working fine to me. I rolled over to my side of the bed and went back to sleep. It was my turn to take Lucy to school that day, and as I got her dressed, Liam made breakfast. It turns out that he had actually woken her up when he had thrown his phone, And he must have felt guilty since he made pancakes. They had always been Lucy's favorite, probably from one movie or another. And despite Liam's insistence that, we're not Americans, we don't have pancakes for a bloody breakfast, he knew they were an easy way to make her happy. That was one thing that I can't fault my husband for. He did love our daughter. It wasn't often that he went out of his way to make her happy, but I suppose he tried when it mattered but the next morning, he was in a foul mood. Okay, now she's awake, he grunted sarcastically when I walked into the kitchen, fastening up my dressing gown. I ignored the comment. It wasn't like I'd slept in overly long. Besides, it was a weekend. I braced myself for a tense breakfast, sat in frosty silence. But as I approached the worktop, my eyes fell on a black screen Covered in splintering hairline cracks What happened to your phone? It stopped working again He said ruffling his newspaper I tried knocking some sense into it Like I did the other night But it didn't work Then I tried again a bit harder Too hard apparently Well that was stupid I said matter of factly As I put the kettle on Liam didn't say anything, he just folded up his newspaper, threw the last dregs of coffee down his throat and left the room, probably more mad at himself than me. If he had been mad at me, he would have shot some comment back. He always did like to have the last word. May's voice took on a sugary lilt as he bumped into Lucy in the hallway. Morning, darling. Didn't wake you up again last night, did I? "'No, daddy.' I suppose I did find it a little strange that my husband had managed to smash his phone without waking either of us, but those thoughts were drowned out by the sheer idiocy of it. With both of us in a mood already, we avoided each other as best as we could. This was always a little bit harder on weekends, and just before we slept, we ended up bickering. "'What's that?' I asked, as I saw him place something under his pillow." A torch. I couldn't help but laugh. What do you need a torch for? To see where I'm bloody going, if I wake up in the night again. Well, maybe if you kept your anger in check, you'd still have your phone. Maybe if you stopped criticizing me all the time, I wouldn't be so quick to anger. And as simple as that, we had descended into an argument that got increasingly personal and ended up with us both rolled over in bed, backs facing each other. When you're mad at someone, even the slightest thing can annoy you. The way that they huff out a breath through their nose, or the way that they tug at the sheets. Eventually, Liam started snoring. I wasn't far behind. I woke up the next day to an empty bed. I had assumed my husband would still be in a mood with me, but when I found him that morning, he was completely oblivious. Staring up at the clock above the fireplace... He clutched a collection of watches and alarm clocks in his arms. In the background, the news was on, but he had had it on mute. May, he said as soon as I walked into the room. He actually seemed pleased to see me. Can I look at your phone for a sec? What what are you doing? Just, uh, what time is it? I told him, and when he shook his head in exasperation, I showed him. They can't all be wrong, he muttered, setting the bundle in his hands on top of the fireplace one by one. He left the alarm clock until last and grabbed it with both hands, raising it into the air to examine. What are you doing, Liam? I asked sleepily, making a point of taking my pink watch from his collection. There was a power cut last night or something. I think there's been one every night. Even my torch didn't work. I shrugged. The clocks have batteries. A power cut wouldn't stop them. You're not listening, he said, shaking his head. Even my torch didn't work. Nothing worked. That's why my phone wasn't turning on. I tried yours last night and it wouldn't turn on either. You were going through my phone last night. No, he said. I was seeing if it worked and it didn't. Nothing did. Not the lights, not the fridge, not the watches. The only thing in the whole house that was still on was this clock. He raised the little alarm clock in his hand. And it was stuck on that same time. 3.33 a.m. Are you sure this wasn't a dream? It wasn't a bloody dream. Okay, so there was a power cut last night. I said, making my way towards the door. Do you want a cup of tea? "'It wasn't just,' he started, "'rubbing at his brow in genuine exasperation. "'Look, I was up for a while. "'At least an hour it had to be. "'And all the while, nothing worked. "'All the while, this clock said 3.33 a.m. "'And then suddenly, everything turned back on, back to normal. "'And this clock said 3.34 a.m. "'So, what are you saying?' He gestured wildly to the television, pointing at the little timer at the bottom of the screen and holding up the alarm clock to compare. They both matched to the minute. How could it be the same? Where has that time gone? His movements were so frantic, he looked like he was two steps away from frothing at the mouth. It must have been a dream, Liam. I don't know, call the electric board or something. See if they've had any power cuts. I'm making a cup of tea." It wasn't a dream. I heard him mutter as he knelt down in front of the TV, holding the alarm clock up to the screen and comparing times. I suppose that was the start of his obsession, but at least he was bearable that day. I could tell that it was occupying his mind, but he didn't mention it again, until he woke me up at least. I think it was the thud that woke me up more than the whimper, but the whimpering was what made me sit bolt upright. What the heck? What the heck? Liam's voice drifted over the foot of the bed, and I could barely see the shape of him scrambling backwards on the floor. The curtains wafted open, moonlight shining through. He must have fallen over, but was still kicking himself away from the window, wide eyes glinting as he shook his head in denial. As I got out of bed and made my way over to him, he flinched and looked up at me. Even in the dim light, I could make out the terror edged on his face. I had never seen my husband scared like this. "'There's something outside,' he sputtered in a frantic whisper. Uh, "'Someone in, in a mask, or they saw me. They looked right at me.' I rose and peeked out of the curtains myself. Our quiet street looked normal to me. Parked cars, streetlights, and the houses opposite. I scanned around, looking for people but came up short. There's nobody out there, I said, letting the curtain fall back. Liam clambered to his feet and shoved the curtain aside, getting his whole body in front of the window. He searched the empty street with both hands pressed against the glass "'I saw someone,' he muttered. "'I bloody saw someone.' "'As I got back into bed, "'I glanced at the alarm clock on Liam's side of the bed. "'3.35 a.m. "'The next day was my turn to take Lucy for school, "'and I didn't see much of Liam all that day, "'despite not going out of my way to avoid him. "'In the evening, I caught him fitting extra locks on the doors.' A deadbolt on the front and back. I had to bite my tongue and not say anything, but knew it would just cause a fight. Besides, we lived in an okay neighborhood, but maybe a little bit of extra caution wouldn't go amiss. What if Liam had seen someone out there, looking to rob us or hurt us? I stared that night to find the bed empty. A quick glance around the room told me Liam was elsewhere. Since I was already awake, I decided to go to the bathroom, and on the landing, I bumped into my husband, walking up the stairs. Even in the dim light, I could see him try to hide something behind his back. "'What's that?' I asked before he could open his mouth. "'Nothing,' he muttered. I walked down the steps to see what he was hiding, but he twisted and grabbed my arm with his free hand. "'Go to bed!' he hissed. What have you got? Is that... Is that a crowbar? It's nothing, he said, but dropped any pretense of hiding it now that I had guessed it correctly. The tool fell from his side, glinting in the darkness. Go to bed. You freaking psycho. I spat in disbelief, stepping away from him. "Well, it's a good job that I had it, someone was trying to open our door. I must have scared them off, What? Someone was trying to get inside. Yeah, I could hear them trying to handle. I had hoped that would have been the end of it, but I was sorely mistaken. Liam's nightly obsession only became worse and worse. He was tetchier than ever, snapping at the smallest thing. It was clear that he wasn't getting enough sleep, and if it wasn't for me urging him on, he would have been much later for work if he went in at all. Not that I got any thanks for it. I became the object of his anger. What was happening was somehow my fault. I didn't believe him, and I wouldn't help him. Wake me up then if it's so bad. I said one day, Don't you think I've tried that? I've shook you, slapped you, but you won't wake up until it's over. Until he's gone. Until who is gone? I asked, asked, Cautiously processing what he was trying to tell me. He had slapped me. Subconsciously, I rubbed at my cheek. Surely I would have felt it if my husband had been slapping me in my sleep. Surely I would have a mark or even a bruise. Liam wasn't exactly a small man. But it also wasn't like him to hurt me. He could be a prick, sure. But he had never purposefully hurt me before. Forget it, he muttered. The alarm woke me up, beeping in the darkness. As soon as I rose to turn it off, Liam's hand pressed it down to silence it. He was fully dressed and standing on his side of the bed. He had the crowbar clutched in one hand. "'What are you... what time is it?' I asked, blearily, still half asleep. "'You told me to wake you up. I can't do it once it starts.' but maybe it'll work if you're awake before. He stalked towards the window and opened the curtain a crack with his crowbar peeking through. For God's sake, Liam. But I got up all the same. If it would keep him quiet and get him back to some normality, I would tolerate it. It was hard to believe that I found myself wanting the old Liam back. This new version was making me see how good we had had it before. 3.32 AM The clock read Standing on the other side of the curtain I pulled it open and peered outside Nothing except our quiet road Streetlights casting an artificial haze across asphalt pavement A distant rumble of a car speeding along a connecting road unseen So what am I looking for exactly? I asked Liam didn't reply So, I kept watching these streets outside. And watching, and watching. Shaking my head, I eventually pulled my head away from the curtain and turned to Liam. But he wasn't there. I looked around the room. He wasn't here at all. I had never heard him leave. A quick glance at the clock told me that it was 3.38am. Deciding that it would be best to look for Liam before returning to bed... I crept out of the room. I eventually found him downstairs on the kitchen floor, hugging his knees and crying. Even despite my current mood for my husband, he looked so weak and fragile. I couldn't help but hug him. The crowbar lay on the tiled floor next to him. "'I've made it so much worse,' he croaked. "'He's never got that close before.' "'What do you mean?' I asked quietly, wiping tears off his cheek. Why did you leave the room? You wouldn't move, you wouldn't answer me. I thought for sure you could see it too, but it was like you were sleeping with your eyes open, standing up. I came down here and saw him, right out there. He pointed to the kitchen window. I glanced over but couldn't see anything through the darkness. Liam swallowed and spoke again hands trembling I opened the window to yell at him to scare him off but it, he it was like he was sliding towards me but fast being pulled through the gap that I was making pulled inside he was almost touching the glass by the time that I slammed it shut he was Liam broke off and began crying again Oh, God, I've made it so much worse. As I looked at the kitchen window, I did notice something. It was whisper faint and fading still. I stood and made my way to the window. If it wasn't for our neighbor's security lights in the background, I would have never made it out. But sure enough, on the window that my husband said he had opened was a faint smear of condensation the kind hot breath it makes on a cold surface. I wiped at it with my fingers, but it didn't come away. It was on the other side of the glass. As I watched it fade away, I tried to reassure myself. It couldn't have been breath marks from a person. It was too tall. They would have to be seven feet tall or so to make marks like that. But it did unnerve me. Coupled with my husband's reaction... It was hard not to tremble a little myself. I led him back to bed, and we tried to sleep. Or one of us did at least. Liam just sat up all night. Just sat there, staring at nothing and shaking. The next day, I called the electric board to see if there had been any reports of power cuts in our area. Not for a couple of months, they had said and then I called the non-emergency number for police to see if they had had any break-ins or home invasions around my postcode lately. They were reluctant at first, but eventually told me, No, no increased activity in your postcode, ma'am. That didn't leave me with many choices. The simplest explanation is often the correct one, and the simplest explanation was that my husband was losing his freaking mind. That didn't explain the fog on the window, but maybe that was just damp air or a trick of the light. Whatever the explanation, my husband's behavior was starting to get out of hand and was scaring Lucy. His eyes were constantly wild and nervous, as though expecting someone to lurch out of the shadows at any moment. He bought extra locks for the windows security cameras and even metal grills to fit over the downstairs windows I drew the line at that I was already close to taking Lucy and walking and I told him as much I hoped that it might snap him out of it but all he said was fine he left the grills off and installed the rest that night I made him sleep on the sofa downstairs and had restless sleep myself, drifting in and out after a bit of tossing and turning, I wondered what time it was and I reached for my phone. But the screen wouldn't turn on. Frowning, I pulled myself across the empty bed and picked up Liam's alarm clock. I almost dropped it when I saw the time. 3:33 a.m. Scrambling out of bed and putting on my dressing gown, I tried the bedroom light switch, but nothing happened. The same in the hall. Was this Liam's idea of a joke? Was he so desperate for me to share his delusions that he had somehow turned everything off? That would be easy enough, I supposed. Flick the fuse board off and drain my phone battery without me knowing. What stumped me was the bath taps. When I turned them out of sheer desperation, not even a drop of water dribbled out. I suppose Liam could have isolated the water... But I didn't understand why he would. He had never mentioned the water not working. Making my way to the stairs, I had to feel my way across the walls. With no lights working and no light source to use, the interior hallway was pitch black, and I awkwardly shuffled my feet down each step, taking my time and clutching the banister. The downstairs was no better. Normally even at this time. There would be enough light coming from the glow of the streetlights outside to see my path. But not even the streetlights were working. Liam couldn't have done that. Power cuts have always unsettled me. It feels like I'm being plunged back a step in our evolution. They shake you out of your daily life. And for a moment, you're an animal again. Afraid. Powerless. We forget how much we rely on electricity... The power cuts always remind us. Liam, I whispered. Even though I was afraid, I didn't want to wake Lucy. Hopefully, she could sleep right through it, at least until morning. I made my way through the kitchen, feeling for cabinets and door handles so I didn't smash into them. Liam. Still no reply. But then I was being quiet. Strangely, the fear which most crept into my mind was him attacking me with that stupid crowbar, mistaking me for an intruder. I tried again, raising my voice just beyond a strangled whisper. Liam. Nothing. Maybe he was sleeping. It would be ironic if he had slept through this power cut, the first one that I had been awake for. In the living room, I could just see his silhouette, sat on the sofa, facing away from me. My eyes were just beginning to adjust to what little light there was, and as I stepped around the sofa, I could see he was awake, eyes open, staring forward. He gripped something tight in both hands. It was a hunting rifle. "'Jesus Christ, Liam!' I hissed. "'What are you doing?' He didn't reply, just kept staring forwards is breathing slow. You know I hate that thing, I muttered, twisting to see what he was looking at. A window facing out into our garden. It was hard to tell with just a slither of moonlight to see, but it didn't look like anyone or anything was out there. Turning back to Liam, I took a hold of the gun and tried to pull it out of his grip. He didn't budge, not even the barest tint of emotion passed his face. Him and that stupid gun. He had told me that he had sold it after his last trip. I tried again, really trying now, bracing myself to wrench it as hard as I could. Again, Liam didn't even wobble. He didn't even look like he was tensing. "Well, I believe you now," I said, letting go of the weapon. But I wish you would stop acting like this. Just tell me what's wrong. Liam said nothing. Did nothing. Not even so much as a frown. Even his breathing was the same. Steady pace. I tried pulling him up. But it was like he was a frozen solid. It began to scare me a little. Liam? I asked, genuinely worried. Still no reply. As I looked closer, I realized something. Liam wasn't blinking. I took him by the shoulders and tried to shake him, but he didn't even wobble. It was like trying to push a wall. And that's when I remembered what he had said the time he had woken me up with the alarm. It was like you were sleeping with your eyes open. His words echoed in my mind, and a thought gripped me. One way to test if he was pretending. I raised a finger to his face and slowly, carefully brought it to his eye. My finger pressed into the white of his eyeball, wet and squishy. Liam didn't so much as blink. I took an involuntary step back and clasped a hand over my mouth. Liam's body was here, but he wasn't. Sleeping with his eyes open. Comatose. Collapsing on the chair in front of him, my mind raised. Was this what he had been going through? Every night, trapped in this place where nothing worked, alone. He had said it felt like hours. Surprisingly, that gave me some comfort. I could just wait. I could just wait until it was over. So, that's what I did. I sat in that chair and tried to go to sleep, but no matter what I tried, I just couldn't seem to drift off. Try as I might, my mind was awake. Eventually, I gave up. Just sat there, waiting, shivering in the dark. It did feel like hours had passed, and still, nothing worked. Occasionally, I would try again, just in case, whispering to my statue of a husband with no reply. As I sat in that chair... Willing time to creep forward, waiting for the light to come back to the world, something else tickled the back of my mind. My husband had seen someone outside. Maybe I wasn't alone. The thought sent a chill down my spine, and my eyes darted amongst the black windows around me. Each one could be hiding someone. Whoever was out there, he had brought my husband to tears. I drew my knees up, clutching them for warmth. It didn't work. Goosebumps prickled my skin, and I wished my husband would say something, anything. The way that he stared at the window behind me with such intensity made me keep checking over my shoulder. Faced with an eternal weight and just my husband's vacant body for company, my glances to each window became increasingly desperate. Part of me wanted to see something. Just see something and have it done with. How long had I sat there? Four hours, maybe five. I decided to stand to stretch my legs and warm up, if anything. Creeping to the garden window my husband was facing, I gave a long considering search amongst the dark, rustling leaves outside. But I couldn't see anything. Whether it was paranoia or something else... It felt like someone was watching me through the windows. They made me feel vulnerable, exposed. I kept to the walls as I stalked around the room, only peeking the barest slither of my face around the window frame. The street outside looked as cold and alone as I felt. My eyes scanned across the cars and houses outside, but without these streetlights working, it was hard to tell for certain. Everything was just a black shadow against a black night. Even the sky in my neighbor's houses seemed to blur into one single image. But as I strained my eyes against the dark backdrop, I spotted something that didn't belong. Two little pinprick lights, faint like distant stars, but on the ground. Squinting, trying to make sense of it, I wondered if it was an animal the lights were close enough together to be eyes, and the bony, straggly shapes of the lights above looked like antlers. I realized that the rest of it was blocked out by a parked car, and I stood on my tiptoes for a better look. I almost screamed when I saw the rest of the body—a man's body—standing perfectly still in the darkness. As the sound left my throat, whatever it was it turned its head. Antlers swaying in the night. The pinprick lights of its eyes erupted into twin torrents of light blinding me. I threw myself out of view, hiding beyond the wall as a beam of pure light flooded the room. Illuminating my husband on the sofa, still clutching his gun, still motionless. That light moved with intent, searching, and I ran. As I made it through the doorway... Illumination splashed against the timber frame, my own shadow stretching in front of me. I twisted around the corner, almost slipping on the kitchen tiles. I couldn't grab the gun. My husband's grip was too strong, but I knew that he kept the crowbar upstairs in the wardrobe. As I ran up the stairs, the twin beams of light followed. Passing the hall window, white light passed around the curtain, matching my pace light spilling across its edges as I ran. Even though the curtains were drawn, whatever was watching me knew exactly where I was. Throwing open the bedroom door, I prepared to die for the wardrobe, for some slim chance of defending myself. In the dark room, my eyes snapped to the only light. Crimson numbers in the darkness. 333 AM Behind me, Light splashed my shadow across the carpeted floor and I fell to meet it, too scared to scream, turning around expecting to see a figure with headlamp eyes and antlers towering above me, but it was just the hall light. Distant gushing water came from the bathroom. The power was back. The water was back. I glanced around the bedroom, back at the alarm clock, tauntingly reading, 3.34 a.m., It's hard to say how long I lay there, gripping the carpet and sobbing, gut-wrenching wails that hurt my throat. I didn't dare look at the clock. I just lay there, basking in the light, knowing that means I was away from that place. Lucy found me, and maternal instincts swallowed my fears. I forced myself off the floor and scooped her up, wiping away tears. I took her back to bed, wrapped a blanket around myself, and fell asleep in a chair. I believe you, I told Liam the next day, still in a wide-eyed state of shock. I was there, 3.33am, everything was turned off, even you. That last part made me cry again. Liam just held me as I trembled. I didn't mention the deer-headed man or his headlamp eyes. I didn't need to. Liam had seen him too. We both called in sick, and this time I said nothing when Liam fit the window grills. I even let him bring the hunting rifle into the bedroom. He propped it up against the wall, and we both lay awake all night, staring at the ceiling, waiting. At 3.30 a.m., Liam sat on the edge of the bed and started to dress. When I asked him what he was doing, he sighed and said, If you got trapped there, that means Lucy might one day too. He snatched up the rifle and laid it across his lap, head bowed. If that happens, I can't protect you. Either of you. I could barely talk around the lump forming in my throat. What, what are you saying? What are you going to... I've sat here night after night, and he just gets closer. The windows rattle so hard, Marie. It sounds like the whole frame is going to come loose. The doors creak and strain. Last time I heard something climbing down our chimney, trying to get through the walls. I don't think I can wait. It's me he wants. Liam, I... I've got to do this, Marie. I just can't sit here. I've got to do something. Liam, I saw... He wasn't listening, talking over me, too bullheaded, too stubborn. I've got to. The faint tick of the alarm clock silenced us both. Our heads snapped towards it in unison. 3.33am. As soon as my eyes fell upon those crimson letters, they flickered to 3.34am. And when I turned back, Liam was gone... In his place a note. I have to find out, Marie. I have to end it. Can't go on like this. I still love you, even if you don't love me back. Look after Lucy. If you wake up at 333 AM, don't look outside. I crumbled the note and ran, searching through the house for him. Liam, I cried. Liam, I saw him too. But my husband was gone. Front door open, cold night air spilling in. Car on the drive, clothes in the wardrobe. The only thing he took was his gun. The next day was a sleep deprived blur of police calls, family calls, and tears. And all the while I watched the clock tick closer, second by second. Creeping towards that time, I was now more afraid of than anything. Well, almost anything. Liam was right. I had to protect Lucy. I could not let her experience that place. I just couldn't. And so I tucked her in bed and waited. Out of sheer exhaustion, I actually fell asleep. But when I woke, it was still pitch black. I didn't need to look at the clock with its crimson numbers to know what time it was. Outside, the wind howled. A garden gate battered open and shut. I wrapped myself tight in my sheet and tried not to think about what Liam had said about rattling windows and something climbing down the chimney. But there was a faint glow coming from behind the curtains. These streetlights were still on then. I snatched up my phone, but it wouldn't turn on. The wind swirled and raged, and with a creeping dread, I remembered our streetlights cast in orange haze—not a pure, perfect white one. I knew in my bones what was casting that light. I don't know why I looked. Curiosity, helplessness, whatever it was, something drove me to peek behind the curtain. A deer skull on a rotting body gazed up at me with headlamp eyes. As I stared open-mouthed, it began to drift, glacier-slow towards me. It didn't walk. It floated. Slid. But to be honest, I barely saw it. My eyes had fallen on a second figure. A man of familiar height and build, clutching a hunting rifle. Where his eyes should have been were two black, sunken pits with distant, pinprick stars. His head tilted, snapped towards me. Those pits swelled into headlamps, high beams on a car, a lighthouse in the night, a spotlight on the stage. My eyes burnt, but I couldn't pull away. Liam raised the rifle, pointed it right at me. Tick. I staggered back. Streetlights flooded the road with an orange haze. The wind died to a murmur. Liam and that thing were gone. The clock read, 3.34am. That was last night. The police have a guard posted outside. They think that I'm worried about my husband coming back. I suppose in a way that I am but they could post a thousand guards outside and it wouldn't make a difference. None of them will be awake at 3.33am. It won't stop. Now I've seen that thing outside. I know, it's just going to get worse. Each night, a little closer. Each night, a little stronger. Liam didn't slow it down. He just gave it a way in. A few days ago, I received a list of rules. Now I'm trapped here. Written by The Unreals. Before I begin, you need to know some things about me. My name is Kirk Downs. I am a 24 year old male, living in New York and working as a software engineer. Not many interesting things happen in my life. It's just the usual, wake, go to work, come back home and sleep routine. Pretty boring, right? Well, something not so boring happened a few days ago, and that's why I'm writing this. A few days ago, while I was leaving for work, I saw a letter sitting on my doorstep. I picked it up and there was no information about where it came from or who sent it. I thought that I would read it after I sat in a taxi to go to my workplace. After doing so, I opened it. There was no name on it either, but the contents of the letter were a little weird. It was labeled as, List of Rules on the top. This is what it read. This letter is sent to you because you'll need it. It is of utmost importance that you don't throw this out and follow all the rules written on this paper correctly for the next seven days, and you might have a chance to make it out. Rule 1. Before going out for work, take two rounds around your house. Rule 2. Whatever you do, don't take the first taxi that approaches you even if the driver says it's free of charge. Rule 3. At exactly 3 p.m., go to the highest floor of whatever building you're in and look out of a window for 5 minutes. Don't respond or react to any voices you may hear. Rule 4. Don't eat or drink anything from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. They could have put something in it. Rule 5. After arriving home, immediately lock all doors and windows so they don't get in. Rule 6. At 10 pm, turn off all the lights in your house and keep all the blinds open. They have the urge to see inside sometimes. Rule 7. Don't answer any calls from 10pm to 4am, no matter who is calling. If the same person calls more than 3 times, answer the call but don't say anything, no matter what the caller is saying. They will get bored after a while. Good luck adventurer, we hope to not see you on the other side. At first, I thought some kid decided to play a prank on me. So, I didn't pay much mind to it. Getting off of work, the driver said the ride was free of charge. That's weird, I thought. And then I remembered rule 2. Whatever you do, don't take the first taxi that approaches you, even if the driver says it's free of charge. What the heck? I pulled out the letter from my bag to confirm that, if that was the rule. And it was. Okay, that's a huge coincidence, I told myself, nothing to be worried about. I said these things to calm myself, but still, I was freaking out a little. I arrived at my desk and started to work. After a while, I forgot about the taxi and the letter. After lunch, I arrived back at my desk and I heard a loud thud from behind me. Everyone in the office looked at the source of the sound, and there was a thing standing there. It was all black in color, and its head nearly touched the ceiling. I watched in horror as it picked up one of my colleagues from the ground and threw him out the window. Everyone started screaming as it started coming towards us. It picked another one of my colleagues and tore her head open, and blood gushed out of it everywhere. I stumbled backwards, and ran away from it. I went to the upper floor and I hid in the closet, because I figured I couldn't run from it easily. I heard screams and cries for help from the floor below me. I pulled out my phone, and tried to call someone, but there was no signal. Then, at one point, everything went quiet. I thought for a second that I was safe, until I heard footsteps, not human footsteps. That thing was coming near me, coming for me. I put my hand on my mouth, trying not to make any sound. From the gap beneath the door of the closet, I saw a shadow. The shadow of that thing. I almost screamed, but the shadow just disappeared. I stayed in there for a few minutes before coming out, and I didn't see anyone. I slowly went down towards my desk, and I saw everyone. Everyone was there. No blood on desks. No broken window. Even my colleagues that I saw dying were at their desks working. Hey man, you okay? My friend Mark asked. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. I sat back on my desk, trying to process what the heck just happened. And that's when my gaze went towards the clock on my computer. p.m. Chills went down my entire body. It took some time to get to the closet, and I must have been in there for around 10 minutes, which means this thing could have come here at... A dreadful realization came over me. 3.00 p.m. I pulled out the letter and read rule number three. At exactly 3.00 p.m., Go to the highest floor of whatever building you're in, and look out of the window for five minutes. Don't respond or react to any voices you might hear. This meant that the thing came here at 3pm. That whatever is written in the letter, it's true. The rules are real. Whoever sent this to me knew that this will happen, and it will keep happening for the next week. I couldn't take it. It was too bizarre. I asked my boss for leaving early and came home. This time, I followed the rules and I locked all the doors and windows. I was hungry but decided not to eat anything until 7 o'clock comes around. After that, nothing really happened. I ate dinner and just chilled until 10 pm came. I turned off all the lights and shut the blinds, and then I didn't have anything to do, so I just decided to go to sleep. Around 1am, I was awoken by a thumping sound on my window. I got up to see what was causing it. I opened the blinds and there was nothing there. I was about to open the window, but decided not to. And then suddenly, something started banging on the window. I fell backwards on the floor as there was still no one at the window. Or maybe I couldn't see who was there. The window started to crack. Just when it was about to break, the thumping stopped. I got up, drenched in sweat. I knew that whatever happened It was because I didn't follow the rules when I left for work. I looked at the rules. I didn't follow Rule 1, Rule 2, Rule 3, and Rule 6. Crap. I cursed myself. The blinds had to be open. I rushed through the entire house, opening all the blinds as quickly as I could. After that, I couldn't sleep. I stayed up the entire night until the sun came out. I went outside and examined the window. It had to be removed. I'll do it in a few days, I thought. After that, I ate some food, and I headed for work. Of course, I followed all the rules this time, took two rounds around my house, didn't take the first taxi. Went to the highest floor in the building, and looked out the window for a little while. But the voices, everyone was screaming in the building, calling me out for help. But I didn't listen. I knew everything would be back to normal in five minutes. Basically everything that I had to do, I did. But this night, I got a phone call from an unknown number, Following the last rule, I didn't pick it. It rang another time and then it stopped. The next two days went by pretty smoothly. I did everything required and no calls came at night. I was thinking that I'll make it out of this hell soon enough. But on the night of the fifth day, a phone call came again from an unknown number. It rang once, it rang twice, it rang thrice. This time, I had to pick it up. I answered, and on the other end was... My mother. Kirk, is that you? She said. It was so sweet hearing her voice again. It took everything I had in me to not speak to her. But I knew it wasn't her. It couldn't be. She had been dead for fourteen years. Soon, she stopped speaking, and the call ended. I burst into tears that I was holding back, from the fear that she, it, would hear me. On the sixth day, I couldn't take it anymore. I had to know what was going on, so I denied all the rules. I didn't take round two before leaving. And after sitting in the first taxi, I asked the driver who he is, to which he didn't reply. I kept asking him, and at one point, I faded out. When I opened my eyes again, I was standing on the street beside my workplace, and the taxi was nowhere to be seen. I went in and still followed rule number three. I was too scared to see that thing again. I ate a pizza at 6 p.m., kept all doors and windows open, and didn't turn off any lights at 10 p.m. I knew I would regret it, but I just had to know what was going on, or I might turn crazy. At 1 a.m., the phone from the same number came again. I picked it up on the first ring. Kirk, are are you there? said my mother's shaky voice. Mom, is that you? I asked, eager for an answer. But after that, she didn't speak. I just heard heavy breathing from the other end. I cried while speaking, begging the voice to speak up just one more time. The call cut off after a while. Immediately after I heard a low voice coming from behind me It was a black thing hovering over me. I Tried screaming, but I couldn't The thing wrapped itself around me. I Couldn't do anything as it suffocated me I woke up in my bed breathing heavily I looked around me for that thing, but it was nowhere. I walked out of the bedroom and out onto the street. It was nowhere. Actually, no one was here. I walked up to my neighbor's house, and no one was in their houses. I drove to my friend's house. No one was there either. I came back to my house and tried calling someone, but there was no signal. Suddenly, I hear a low, animal-like sound behind me. I look back, and a creature of some sort attacks me. Thankfully, it was small, so I was able to kick it and get away. But after that, I thought I heard another animal-like sound. And then another, then another. More and more sounds emerged from the darkness. I ran into my bedroom, closed the windows and doors and barricaded them. With whatever I could. It's morning here now. When I'm writing this. And I can still hear the voices. I can still hear those things outside. I figure. I have only a few hours left with my phone's battery. Please. If someone sees this. Please help me. Please. I found a doorway in the woods, written by Sunhead Prime. I love hiking. There is nothing like getting away from the world, especially these days, and getting lost in nature. Over the years, I've become a pretty decent backpacker and taken on some pretty wild trails. Sometimes I go with my hiking group, I'll spare you our horrible name. Sometimes I went with a friend, but I went alone a lot of times. I know the inherent dangers of solo hiking, and always make sure I take the necessary precautions before my boots hit the dirt. I had been looking for a new place to explore, and came across a post on an online hiking group that said that they had found a beautiful hike that wound through some woods near a little stream, but ended in a breathtaking waterfall. It was a little off the beaten path, the post said, so you would have to hike to the trailhead before you would even get to the trail. Overall, they said it would take about four to five hours, but it was worth it. You know you're at the trailhead when you see three twisted trees. You can't miss them. I cleared my schedule for that Saturday, left the coordinates of where I would be going with a friend, and looked forward to hiking a new spot. If it was good enough, I would suggest it to the group. We had a little friendly competition about finding new trails or unique hikes, and I was super competitive. I had high hopes for this one. The morning of, I packed my bag with everything that I would need, and some things that I hoped I wouldn't need, and hit the road as the sun was starting to rise. I wanted to get to the waterfall right as it hit the hottest part of the day, My plan was to hit the trail, hike the 5 hours or so, I always assumed the worst case, or so I thought, head back home and grab a pizza from my favorite spot to help replace the carbs that I had just burned off. It sounded like a beautiful way to spend a Saturday. The post said that you would need to park your car on the side of the road near the H exit. From there, you would have to walk down the embankment, and then it was about a 20 minute hike to the Three Twisted Pines. I left a note on my dashboard in case anyone found my car or the police were looking to tow it and I grabbed my pack and I headed for the pines. It was still early and the sun had just started to peek out. There was a chill in the air but I didn't mind it, I knew that it would heat up sooner rather than later. Even this early these songbirds were out and making their presence known. People tend to only think of urban areas as loud, but nature is also a cacophony of sounds. Birds tweet to hopeful partners, brooks babble, bees buzz near their hives and the wind shakes the trees and rattles the leaves. If you listen, you can hear the groan of the trunk as it sways in the breeze. It is more peaceful than, say, a car alarm, yes, but quiet, absolutely not. The trek to the pines was easy, a slight downhill grade, but nothing too intense. However, the woods around me were thicker than I thought they would be, and I could see how it would be easy to get lost. I had an app on my phone that helped me keep track of where I was, and I'm glad I did. To make matters worse, it had rained the night before, and the trail was a collection of muddy puddles, some more severe than others. I walked in the direction the post said to go and kept my head on a swivel for the three twisted pines. I was starting to wonder if I would ever see them or if they even existed. I had a passing thought, what if the post was fake? I asked myself who would do that and why, but any recent online interaction answered that question. Some people are just assholes, but still that was a pretty reliable place. And I had hiked a dozen trails from recommendations from that site. But as soon as I started to doubt myself, I spied three twisted pines set away from the rest of the woods. They were a sight to behold in and of itself. Unlike their cousins, who stood tall nearby, these three trees were stooped over and gnarled like they had a disease that twisted them into knots. The three of them had become intertwined over the years and formed a trellis of sorts, kind of like a doorway in the woods. It looked like a genetic mutation, but there were no other pines nearby that looked like this. It was weird and noteworthy to say the least. I pulled up my phone and I snapped a photo. I couldn't wait to show my hiking group. I put my phone away and walked through the door and started off on the trail. To call it a trail is a bit of a misnomer. Usually, trails were well-worn ruts in the ground, evidence of millions of footfalls on the land. But this trail wasn't so well-worn. There was a lot of grass growing around the slimness of a dirt trail, and oftentimes nature overtook it for a few feet. Maybe the grass had grown in some because of the rain, but it was clear that this wasn't used very often. I was excited about that prospect. The deeper I got into the woods, the bigger the canopies got until eventually, it was like walking through a natural tunnel of trees. It was relaxing and it kept the hot sun off my back. I tend to skip getting tan and end up smack dab in lobster land when I'm out in the sun, so this was a welcome respite. Despite the foliage overhead. The rain had come through and left the trail a muddy mass. At places where the trail widened some, it was covered with patches of slowly drying mud. In the areas where the sun's rays broke through the canopy, you could see the cracks in the mud as it dried and curled. But in the wet spots, you could actually see footprints of little creatures that ran by and left their mark in the dirt. They were soon joined and dwarfed by my boot print. At about 3 hours in, the trail widened considerably and looked well worn. I had assumed the first parts may have been a new path to an older trail, but even this struck me as odd because there were no other smaller trails that led to this big one. It was wide, almost as big as a road, and looked like it had been a large game trail. Since there was no large game around these parts anymore, nor any road access to this area. I wondered how this trail got so big. Undaunted, I kept walking ahead and humming to myself. Even through the shade, I could feel the heat starting to rise. My shirt started clinging to me, and I couldn't wait to be under that waterfall. As I dreamed of cooler situations, something interesting caught my eye. Up ahead, near the brook, the sun was reflecting off of something At first, I thought it was the water, but as it got closer, I saw that it wasn't. My next thought was trash, or maybe someone lost their keys, but that wasn't it either. It was four polished stones. When I say polished, I mean machine polished. The stones were so shiny, it almost hurt to look at it. They were placed in a square pattern on the ground, which I felt was odd. But what really made my heart stop was that there was a place in the middle of the square where something used to be. The dirt around it looked wet, but it wasn't from rain. It was blood. That's when I noticed the whole altar, for lack of a better word, was in front of three twisted pines. Again, they formed an arch that looked like a door. Even though I could look right through them and see the water of the stream. Something told me not to walk under those trees. I bent down to look at the polished stones. There were some etchings on them, some kind of symbols that I had never seen before. I took a photo but it came out blurry. In fact, all the pictures I took from that hike came out blurry. I searched for these symbols and never found anything like them yet. Just then, the hair on my neck stood on end. My spidey sense was telling me something terrible was coming, and for the first time in my life, I prayed it was a wild animal stalking me. I heard branches snapping back from the way I came, and I didn't want whatever it was to see me. I made a mad dash to the tree line on the side of the path, and hid behind the biggest tree that I could find. Suddenly, from about the area that I came in at, a figure emerged. The figure was covered from head to toes in a large, flowing green cloak. Their hands were outstretched in front of their chest and held a small box in their palms. From behind them was another figure in a green cloak. Only their arms were hanging by their sides. Another figure, then another, and another. All told, there were about twelve of these cloaked figures, in two lines walking in a slow procession along the trail. They kept their heads down, and the cloak hood obscured their faces, but I could hear them chanting. I don't know what language it was. I thought maybe Latin, but I've listened to some Latin language online and that's not it. Whatever it was, it was a chant they all knew. It had a weird effect too. I felt, I don't know, dizzy. Maybe it was because my adrenaline was spiking. I don't know, but the whole thing felt off. It's also this moment when I realized that all the other noise in the woods was gone. All I could hear was the chanting. I wanted to run, but I was afraid that these guys weren't just out for a friendly hike, and might cause me some serious harm if they caught me. Whatever the heck this was, I was not supposed to be here to see it. I crept along the trees, careful to stay hidden as they marched towards the altar. This explained why the trail got so wide here. If these people had been doing this for a while, it would have trampled down the grass. I watched as they walked and tried to notice anything other than their cloaks. I didn't see anything that could identify them at all. Not a thing. But something I noticed was that when they walked through the wet mud, they didn't leave a footprint. When they were about ten feet from the altar... They stopped and got real quiet. The lead figure took two steps forward and turned to face the rest. As they did, they bowed in silent reverence. They held the box high above their head and said something in that odd language. The assembled others spoke back in a strange call and response. He did this three more times before turning his back to them and striding to the altar. My legs were twitching to run. But I was so deathly afraid of being caught that I stayed put, I couldn't help but watch. It was almost like I was in a trance. But that was quickly broken when the leader of the gang, Nelton, opened the little box. I still have no idea what the heck happened, and any attempt to understand it leaves me asking more questions. Questions I will never have answers to. The figure placed the box on the ground in the middle of the polished rocks and opened it. That was the moment I knew I had to get out while the getting was good. As soon as they had cracked the box, a bright light shot up into the sky, and a dense fog started emanating from the tiny box. Within seconds, it had engulfed the entire group and was heading my way. The sky had begun to darken too. That was enough for me. My legs finally best in my brains, and I took off in a sprint. I know I made noise and I heard some of the figures yelling in my direction and their language, but I was not sticking around to translate. I was barreling down the trail and crashing through the woods. I swear that I heard a roar as I broke through the path that led me to where I had been. I dashed on the trail until I saw the original three twisted pines. I raced through them and as I did, the sky brightened back up. I was gasping for breath but I kept going. I ran through the woods until I saw the embankment where my car was parked. As I ran to my door, I noticed someone had slashed my front tires. I didn't care, I was getting the heck out of there. I unlocked my door, cranked the ignition and drove my hotwood car to the nearest gas station. As I drove away, I looked into my rearview mirror and saw one of the figures walk through the twisted pines. They watched me drive away, with my tire slowly shredding. I tightened my grip on the steering wheel and flattened the pedal. I knew that it was dangerous to drive on a flat and would probably be a cost of the repair, but I didn't care. My lizard brain was the only part of me working at that moment, and I just needed to get the heck away. When I got to the gas station, I remembered that my app was tracking my movements. I was curious though, so I opened the app expecting to see a single line in and a single line out, but what I saw was crazy. The line started from the side of the road, but once I got to the Twisted Pines, it looked like I just ran around in circles for hours before the line back out to my car. It's never done that before, nor has it since. Hours later when I finally got home, I decided to find the posting that had suggested the trail in the first place and found that it had been deleted. I wrote a thread asking if anyone remembered seeing it or had for some reason taken a screenshot of the posting, but no one knew what I was talking about. It was like I was the only person who saw the posting. I paused my solo hiking for a bit and have stuck with well known trails for the time being. I become hyper-aware of what's going on around me at all times. I'd rather not find myself in that situation ever again. What's strange, though, is that I've seen these twisted pine tree archways a few other places. I think my brain is attuned to finding them now. Kind of like when you hear a word for the first time and then start noticing it everywhere. When I walk by them, though, I feel a chill, drape my body like a cloak. I like to think of it as a warning but I fear it might be a way of inviting me back in. It seems to trigger a part of my brain that, for a fleeting second, contemplates walking through the trees. I stop myself every time before I even take a step, but the idea that I even consider it scares me. Sometimes when it's really quiet out on a trail, I hear what sounds like chanting coming from the trees, and I feel my blood freeze. Are they following me or recruiting me? That's usually when I call today and sprint back to my car.